Welcome to the Yeshiva Shalmaila. This is David Lichtenstein, and this week we're going to be speaking about parenting. I know I get complaints. Last week I got a bunch of calls. Go back to halacha, go back to halacha. But I wanted to do this one topic. It's such a public service because so many of the listeners here, including myself, are parents. And so many of us, including myself, so know so little about parenting or so much less than we should know. And, you know, we hear about in our community, off the derech, naches, shalom bias issues, even because kids weren't brought up well, or alternatively, you know, kids not getting along with their parents. So again, I said, we have a lot of reach, you know, many Rabbanim, most Rabbanim therapists would come on. So we did a search and we said, let's find a few really wonderful Rabbanim, psychologists, therapists who write about parenting. This is their key area of expertise. Have them come on and maybe you and I will learn something. So we got Dr. Sarah Yaroslowitz. She's written numerous books. She gives classes. She coaches. Fascinating interview about parenting. We have from Lakewood, Ramatis Miller. He's a therapist. He's also an author, writes in magazines, books, etc. about parenting. We have Rabbi Ron Isaac Yitzchak Eisenman from Passaic, the Rav in Passaic. Well, very well-known Rav. You'll hear of it from a Rav's position as a communal leader. Parents who come into him and ask for counseling. We have a psychologist from Toronto, the author, Sarah Hannah Radcliffe, written many books about parenting. And from Eretz Yisrael, we have Rabbi Noach Erlewick. He's also written, I think between our five guests, we probably have 20 books on parenting. Should be a really fascinating shear. And I say shear because, you know, Derech Eretz Kadmala Torah, Hilchas Deis V'chayvis Halvavis is also part of Torah. Midas is all part of Torah. Musas Farim are part of Torah. I say a shear. Should be a fascinating shear. Before we go to our guests, I want to say something from the Parsha about this topic. The Pasik says, If you have the minig of benching your children, either Shabbosim, some do it Shabbos Mavarchim, certainly before Yom Kippur, we all use this bracha. So the question is why? What's special? I mean, Avram, the Rabbi Shalom said, all the nations of the world will bench with Avram. All the Avais were gebenched. Why is it the Shvatim were all gebenched? Why do we say, we say Simcha Leikim, we should say, Ke Avram, Ke Yitzchak, Ke Yaakov, like the Shvatim, why do we say Ke Ephraim or Ke Menashe? So I saw in this Fasemis asked the question, and his Teretz is, he says, what are we all worried about? It's a beautiful Teretz, but I'm gonna ding Zachanim. He says, we are all worried about Eurydice Hadiris. The further we get from Sinai, the further we get from the source. So he says, but Yaakov is saying that Ephraim and Menashe, Kiruvein and Kishim and Yuli, so basically he's saying the Enoklach, the Bnei Banim, are Kibanim. So time doesn't matter anymore. Generations don't matter. So just like a grandchild could be my son, a great-great-great-great-grandchild could be my son too. So it's basically a bracha that there should be no Yeridas Hadiris. It's a beautiful pshat. In fact, when the Gemara says, Kol ha-malamed ben b'nai tayra ki l'kibla mersinai, why ben b'nai? Because we're saying it's ki l'kibla mersinai, it goes all the way back in time. If it's your son, it's not going all the way back in time, there's Yeridus Hadiris. But if we say, malamed ben b'nai ki l'kibla so my grandchildren are like my children, so it's ki l'kibla mersinai. But the problem with this teratus is that it's placed in the wrong context. In other words, when he says to Yosef, he's Ephraim u'menashe keruven u'kishim and yuli, at that point, or someplace after that, when they come back, he should have said, Why is it over here? Why does it come after Hamalach HaGoyal? It should proceed as, it's sort of, it's, 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 it's here in the middle of nowhere. So I want to share with you a different shot. 
and why it comes after this point. And it's really, I'm, I'm stealing it from the Igra the Caliph, from the, the B'nai Yisachar. All of Bereshis is about dysfunctionality in families. We see it every place. What does it say? He gets really upset, Cain. And what does he do? He kills Hevel. One brother killing the other brother. What happens by Noach? He has Shem Cham V'yefes. And Cham gets up and Mesares Aviv, whatever that means. And he becomes Evid. His children become Evid Loi. He should have been. Ramban says he couldn't because he was gebenched. But basically his whole family becomes Avadim. And he was Mesares' father. Real dysfunctionality. One brother's kids becoming Avadim to the others. Real dysfunctionality. By Avram, Sarah and Hagar. Garish es Amazois. Hilayirish in Benayim Yitzchak. He's chased out. Again, this is because another type of thing. Two mothers who uh, didn't see eye to eye, to put it mildly. What happens by the next set of brothers that we see? Esav and Yaakov. He, he felt cheated. Esav felt cheated. He wanted to kill. He says, after my father dies, I will kill my brother Yaakov. He was cheated, he was wronged, he wants to kill him. Next set of family. When's the next set of family, we say? We say by uh, Yosef. They were jealous of him. They hated him even more. And ultimately, they sell him into slavery. So we have here one, two, three, four, five families, all of which terrible dysfunctionality. What happens over here? He wants to bench them. So what does Yaakov do? He crosses over his hands famously. So here's something really beautiful. The Igra the Kala says. After that, he says, He doesn't even say what the bracha is. So he said, the Igra the Kala says, he says, when he crossed over his hands and he saw that Menashe, it didn't bother him. He knew that he, he wasn't getting the bracha. He, he, wasn't, he was getting the left hand, not the right hand. And then alternatively, Ephraim got the right hand. Yaakov did not sense any gaiva on Tzad Ephraim. So here are two brothers. One should be seemingly jealous of the other. One seemingly wronged by the other. The one who was wronged, nothing. He's fine with it. The other one, not misguided. He said, this is the first family, the first two brothers that love each other. And Bereshis, a family full of love. At that point, what does he say? Let all families be this way. And it's nice. And the next time you bench your children and you say, what are you really saying? Let my children love each other and let them love me too. Because he's referring to all the prior diaries. Look what Cham did to Nayach. Let it be harmony in the family. So this is why it comes after Hamalach because that's when he crossed his hand. So it, it's really in the right place according to this. I want to go a little bit further than this and say, why didn't Menashe throw a fit? I mean, he was cheated. He was, he was robbed. Go back to when he names them, Ephraim and Menashe. What does the name mean? What does Yosef say? Nashani Elohim Eskol Amali Veskol Beis Avi. Nashani, what does Rashi say? The Mepharshim say? Nashani means, I, was, I forgot, I let go. He was able to move past all the grief that he had had. You know what? My brothers did it to me. It was awful. <laughs> 12 years in a dungeon in Egypt. You know what? It's just 
Life is in fear. You know, one of the primary drivers of jealousy, which is an emotion that many of us suffer from, is the life is in fear syndrome. How could it be? You know, I work just as hard as him, and look where he ended up, and look where I ended up. Shidduch, money, career, shtela, life is not fear. And when do I say life is not? Life is really not fear. Think of the most successful person you know, Jewish or non. Pick your favorite person. And who did I hear this from? I heard this. I was once at an event, and uh, I was brought a kosher meal, and they were wrapping it and unwrapping it, which I probably shouldn't have eaten at all, because it was quite embarrassing, honestly. So nobody sat, sat next to me, a guy sitting there with a yarmulke at a very high-end event, and Warren Buffett was one of the invitees, and he came in, and he saw a seat next to me, and he sat down next to me, and we schmoozed for like an hour and a half. And one of the things he told me, he says, you know, I'm from the Lucky Gene Club, but he said, I'm also... He said, really, what people don't realize is just how lucky I am chronologically. He said, just imagine, at any time in history that I would have been born, except for now, he says, if it was a thousand years ago and the person who could run fastest away from a tiger or a buffalo, I'd be dead. He said, I don't run very fast. He says, I'm born at a unique time where the thing that matters is the ability to manage money. He says, then think of it. I could have been born in Africa. And he says, with my ability to manage, I for sure would have the most banana trees in our jungle. He says, so I was born in the United States. He says, if I was born a woman at the period when I grew up, women just didn't go to college. I wouldn't have been successful. He says, as a male, I could have been born to economic class that couldn't afford to send me to Columbia University. He says, just, it's such a, a lottery of winning so many different things. And he said, the next lottery is, he says, I was born with a particular IQ. So life really isn't fear. And we could walk around and be filled with grievances and say, it's not fear, justice, there's no justice in the world. A more mature way to look at it is, is we, don't, we don't really understand much. We don't understand why this person was born to this family, why this fi- We don't. We could have a muna, and we do have a muna, that klapi kaviyachal, everything is fear and there is a cheshben. But certainly, the concept of tzadik viralai rules in the bria. Rosh life is not fear. And there's two ways. So what's the mature way? The mature way is, look, I really don't understand it. Some people get breaks and some people don't. So let's just move on. And what does Yosef say? Nashani elikim. It's not fear. Move on. We can't figure this out. It's just, it's just something we could be walk around the whole day aggrieved and say, there is no justice, there is no justice. You're just going to get an ulcer. So what is the son named Menashe Nashani? Yaakov puts the left hand on his head and he was robbed. And you know what he says? Nashani, you like him. You know what? Go figure. Life sometimes isn't fair. Sometimes you get breaks and sometimes you don't. And you know what? I'm not going to get aggravated about it. What does Yaakov say in such a family? The two takeaways are, if you're eating your heart, about, heart up about jealousy or justice, you're really wasting a lot of energy. That's Yosef's message. And what's the second message? The next time you bench your children, what does Degrad Kahl say? It's really a tefillah for peace among your children. Peace also among the children and the parents. May we all be zeichet to it. Let's go to our riddles of the week. Before we go to our riddles, I do want to say we get so many calls. And our resident uh, engineer 
and and, and Talmud Chacham who takes care of a lot of the riddles, I know we get complaints. You know, I answered this and I we don't get it right. <laughs> Life isn't fear. We just don't. He's underpaid and overworked, and we just don't get it always right. I apologize. So we have really many Talmud Chachamim who answer. Some have wonderful answers who we don't win, and sometimes maybe people who do have answers who shouldn't win, we do we we often get it wrong. But the real purpose here is Lahagdal Tairaval Hadira. And looking at the volume of answers, I think Bar Hashem we are Matzliach and that. So here are the winners of last week's riddles. David Zemel, Shragi Bamzer, Levi Silman, Avraham Goldberger, Akiva Ibragimov, Moshe Levine. Ephraim Ziansei, Simcha Rosenblatt, Abba Walk, Struli Modis, Schleimi Berlin, David Birenbaum, Tzviakov Konigsberg, and Kalman Goldberg. And now for this week's riddles. Vayikra Yaakov Elbona Vayamer Heosfu Vagidolochem, Ashikra Eschem Bachros Ayamim, Rashes Bikesh Legalis Yasakates, Venestalkum Imenushchina. He wanted to be Megala when Mashiach is coming. The opposite of blessed are you, those who are mechashvekitzim. Don't don't try to figure it out. Chakelai, wait for him. So the Rambam in the Pirush Hamashnayis in the twelfth Yisoid says the Yemois Hamashiach. It's it's sort of it's a mitzvah lahamin v'loymer sheyavai. Right, Just have a Right, and that's how the Rambam learns. Have a muna, believe in it. The Rambam in the Yad Chazaka, Perakir Aleph, Vilchus Malacha, Malacha Aleph, Kol Misheni Maimim Mashiach Ve'ene Mechake Libiyasai. It's a mitzvah to wait. So the question is, why did Yaakov Bikesh Legali says Hakates? If there's a if there's a concept of emuna, of faith, to wait for Moshiach v'chol yoy mechakil yavai, and tipach atzmoisam shal mechakil kitzim, and there was, and the Rambam learns tipach atzmoisam because you're taking away this, this kiyum of the achakil yoy mechakil yoy mechakil yavai, l'chayra, why was Yaakov avinu? Chishev legalis, bikesh legalis esakates. That is riddle number one. By the way, this week's are going to be a little harder because we've been making big payouts the last two weeks, last few weeks, and our auditor says we may be, you know, by the end of the year, we could be, uh, I don't know, we could be in a bad financial position, headlines, uh, headlines yeshiva. So we're going to make them a little bit tougher. It says, So here's the problem. The Gemara in Shvua says, that if a person makes a shvua, that somebody's going to uh, be zoyrik something to the yam, he's going to throw something into the yam, it's a shvua's shav. Rava merchayiv, shvua shezorak plein yitzra liyam. You see the Gemara, the Gemara makes a chashin. Why? Because you don't control it. It's not b'kechacha. And Shulchan Aruch in Yeridei, paskins that way. In other words, it's, it's uh, something that you don't control, you can't promise. You could say, I will, I will eat, I won't eat, I will give, I won't give. But you can't say that somebody else will do something. Why? Because you don't, it's not in your power. I promise that he will do something. How could you make such a promise? A sure shove. Even if the guy does do it, unless you actually could control the other person. If it's an employee of yours, etc. But the problem is by Yosef, it wasn't biyadai. He had to take rishus from Parai. Yaakov, so you see, it was difficult for Yosef to do. You see, from the Rishayna, from Chazal, it was difficult. So why did Yaakov two off by saying, He shavali, he shavali, hain tai shavali morgan. It's a shvua shav. That is our riddle, our second riddle.
And our third riddle, for those who are Chaim aficionados, and it is truly just the most magnificent uh, pirush, he says a very nice thing. He says, Atem chashavtem alai ra, elikim chashvalotayva. So our Chaim is like, Bavarning, what, he's trying to give them like a good shtach? Atem chashavtem alai ra, elikim chash. That's not being a very gracious uh, brother when they come and they beg. Anna, they ask him for please. He says, Atem chashvalai ra, but I I got you. You meant bit. So Rechaim says very nice. He says, even though you feel you feel bad that chashvam alay l'ra, since alaykim chashvam l'tayva, Zakta Rechaim, this is Lashen, hare zeh doyme l'mischavin l'hashkeis chaveri kais maves. It's like somebody tries to poison his friend, but instead he gave him the kais yayin, he mixed up the cups. He says, she'enu mischayev klum. So he says, this is Lashen, hare im pturim v'zakoyim gam b'dinei shamayim. So he was at the rabbi, saying, what he was saying was a nice thing, even if you meant to do bad, since Hashem meant to do good, so comes out you don't even need a kapara, so why are you asking me for mechila when you don't even need any mechila? Problem is, the famous Gemara, the Gemara Nazir, the Gemara in Kedushin says, Mishin is skavin lalish biyade basar chazir. Somebody meant to eat treif, and instead he ate kosher. Toyin kapara uslicha. So you see, bidei shamayim you achayev. So how could the Yerachayim Hakadosh say that as meschavin? He says that don't worry. He tells his brothers meschavin lahashir chaveri kais maves vishkeu kais yayin sheinu meschayev klum veharim pturim vezakoyin gambadine shamayim. When the Gemara in two places says meschavin lalis biyade basel chazir biyade basel tle he's chayev toyin kapara uslicha. Those are the bomb cash on the great Erechaim, who was a big guy in Nigla too. He wrote Svarim and Nigla besides. Uh, so those are our three questions of the week. And anybody who gets the, uh, the three questions, the trifecta, again, we will be sending out uh, a prize just as we are this week. Those are our three riddles. Now let's go to our guests. By the way, at the end of this program, I forgot to say, we will go over the questions for last week and some of the, what we believe, and again, it's just one person's opinion, the incorrect answers as well as the correct answers. Again, what one person believes. To leave a message, call 732-806-8700 and press number two or email at info at headlinesbook.com. And now let's go to our guests. Joining us from Lakewood, New Jersey, is Dr. Sarah Yaroslowitz, who's an expert in parenting. She's written a number of books about it. Parenting, are your hands full? She teaches about it. She lectures about it. She uh, is a therapist, deals with parents about it. Um, she's a Talmud of the Besiakos. Um, welcome, Dr. Yaroslowitz. Hi. Thank you very much. So you have a practice about a parenting practice, what percentage of the parents who come into your practice before they take your courses, your courses, read your books, know, know much about parenting? Zero. They don't know anything. So I would like to, I'm a father, and I'm now a grandfather, I've never taken a course, and I'd love to learn what I'm missing. Could you share with us what, you know, some of the assignments, the foundations of parenting are with me as well as the audience listening so we can get smarter? Sure. Absolutely. So basically, the foundation of parenting, the goal of parenting, is that 
you should take 7,000 days and train your child that when they exit the 7,000 days, they should run through their lives the way you would have liked them to. That they should develop the skills while they're with you, which is a short period of time, to be able to grow into what you had aspired for them. And what is that? That they should be Shaimatara Mitzvahs and have the proper relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That they should be you know, emotionally stable and able to form a healthy relationship with a spouse. And the third thing is that they should be talking to you, that they should have the correct relationship with you. Those are the three main goals. Now, there are skills that children need to learn and parents need to teach during those first 7,000 days in order to accomplish those goals. And the skills, there are three of them, and they're built one on top of the other, kind of like the way you build a building. The foundational skill, the most important skill, which gets us through life in general and gets us through the learning process, is being able to handle when things don't go the way we want. In fancy English, we call that frustration tolerance. If a person is able to handle when things don't go the way they want, they will be basically healthy throughout their lives. For example, if I told you you're going to live 120 years in Mitzvah Shem, and mathematically speaking, 50% of the time, things are going to go the way you want, and 50% of the time, they won't. Let's just say, Olam Haza, the way we know it. And you can't be okay when things don't go the way you want. You, 50% of the time, you won't be okay. That means you'll only be happy. You'll only be okay 50% of your life, which is a terrible shame. But what happens if I trained you and taught you that you could be okay even when things don't go the way you want, then you could be happy and okay all your life. And that's the foundation upon which all of human health is based. Particularly, one very important piece of human health, specifically for from Jews, is the concept of obedience, being able to listen and obey an authority. That's what we're all about. So obedience, what is obedience? Obedience is that I do something, not necessarily do I love doing that something. I don't, maybe I don't particularly want to do that something because somebody else asked me to. Whether it was a Rav or a Rosh Hashiva or the Rabbana Shalom himself or my teacher or my mother or my father, somebody asked me to do something that I don't particularly want to do and I did it, here comes the magic word, anyway, because I was trained to tolerate frustration and discomfort before that. So, for example, if my mother tells me to go take a shower, and I don't particularly want to take a shower, but I'm used to the concept that maybe life doesn't have to go the way I want all the time, and I'll be okay anyway, I'll go take a shower anyway. Oh, so, for example, if I don't particularly like to fast, or you don't particularly like to fast, but a couple of days a year, I fast anyway, and I'm okay anyway, even though I have to, that comes from that foundational lesson of frustration tolerance. So now that I taught the child to tolerate frustration, and from there they became an obeyer, they learned to obey and do things anyway, a child who is an obeyer by nature has a much better chance of controlling his impulses or her impulses and engaging in things that they're not supposed to engage in, particularly during the teenage years. So if a child is obedient by nature and is used to tolerating that I can't have everything I want just because I want it, and it doesn't have to go the way I want just because I want it, and I'm obeying others and I'm happy that way because I feel safe and secure because the people who are teaching me are 
taking care of me, then I'll have a much better chance of holding myself back when I'm exposed to chasvashom, the things that I'm not supposed to be exposed to. And we call that third stage impulse control. So parenting is a process. You can't teach a child to be perfect the first minute. It's, the Rebbe gives us 7,000 days to do the job, approximately, and we have to build one stage on top of the other. So this is great because I hear all the time from people, oh, my son has impulse control, my daughter has impulse control, and I wouldn't have a clue, you know, what do you do about that, but you're setting forth an exact set of steps. So now you've basically told us, and I think, by the way, this is for adults, too, I mean, handling when things don't work out the way you want. I mean, I don't know about you, but in, in my life or anybody who's, you know, it's, it's a lot of things don't exactly go the way I want. I, the Mishal Shisharim says, 40 days in your life, things went the way you wanted. He said, you know you got your Elam Haba in this world. But well, um, well, So I how do we do that? I guess 50% is pretty liberal. Not bad. So how do we? How do we? How do you teach a child, or the child may be me, to, um, to handle, you know, frustration tolerance? Okay, so... Darbanishlam sets up a child's development and developmental stages, and he actually runs our developmental brain like a highway. You know, we run along the highway, and the time that children learn best, that's not to say that they can't learn it later, but the time that children learn best to tolerate frustration is when the first time they become aware of frustration as a concept, and that it has a fancy name. It's called the terrible twos. So children become aware of frustration as a concept. Approximately the earliest we see, we see it is about 15, 16, 17 months. And that process, the terrible twos, generally runs itself out by the age of four. And in those two, two-ish years are the most precious opportunity to teach a child that life will not necessarily deliver what you want, when you want it, how you want it. How, yes, do you do how? Yes, how do you do that? You know, I, I was, you know, you, you buy, you, I just yesterday, a few days ago, with my little grandson, he builds this tower, it keeps falling down, and he just gives it this huge kick and starts howling his head off. Right. And you wouldn't respond. I'm sorry. And he, I, would be, he would be stuck in a vacuum. He would be left in a vacuum. That means nobody's giving attention to the kicking and the howling. No, but I do give and attention. I know, I said, but you would down. Okay. Yeah, right, exactly. But you wouldn't give attention. What do you mean? I would hap- I'm not you wouldn't. You. you would just. You're sitting and learning your Gemara at a table, and he's playing, playing blocks. You're saying I shouldn't. There was, I you should. shouldn't. Right. Okay. You shouldn't. Okay. And he would have no choice but to recalibrate because you didn't intervene. Is that true? Uh huh. And what would happen is, is he would. You would hear it. It's fascinating to watch. He would self-calm because the brain can only stay agitated for so long, he would self-con and start building again. And what children learn to do when they self-calm is they become their own problem solvers. And the young brain is much, has a much better propensity for learning anything new than an older brain. So if a child, for example, I'll give you another example. You're in a store and a child wants to buy a toy and you don't particularly feel like buying the toy that time. Or they want a snack and you don't feel like buying the snack that time. And they start howling and screaming because they want it. And you get panicky because it's making noise or you're embarrassed or whatever. And and the child learns, huh, if I open up my mouth and I holler, then I get what I want. Right. How does that work in marriage? So the best way to teach this, if you want to do this for your future son and daughter-in-law, these cute little kids who are running around somewhere, you want to teach your child now when they're young that it's okay. 
It's okay. Things don't always go the way we want. And you ignore the crying. You keep shopping. And eventually you walk out of the store and the earth continues rotating on its axis. It's okay. So you're saying that a kid throws a temper tantrum, ignore it. Let's say yeah. a kid skins his knee on a bicycle. Ah, that's not a temper tantrum. A, tantrum, a temper tantrum is when a child has a disagreement with a parent or is frustrated or angry. If a child skins a knee, that's pain. That's different. But why don't, wouldn't you say not the same thing, like crying. teach the kid how to no, 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 no. handle no, 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 things no, no. on his own? <laughs> well, you, you comfort the child, you put on a bandage, you, you, you do all of that. But then if you've done the routine of calming the child down after falling off a bike, and they still continue hollering and hollering and hollering for attention. That's another story. But the average child will be consoled when you calm them down. We call this, by the way, ignore negative behaviors. The Russian Tavis for that is I-N-B. Falling off a Yeah. Falling off a bike and skinning your knee is not a negative behavior. Oh, I understand that. And Screaming ignore, like a lunatic in, in the words, store because is, you couldn't get a toy is a negative so behavior. So, Doctor, tell me if I understand this correctly. When you see negative behavior in a child... If you give it attention, you're basically watering the flower. It will happen meat. again. Correct. And and you're teaching it that it's behavior that attracts attention. Correct. Whereas if you ignore it, even though it could be very uncomfortable for the parent, but short term it's uncomfortable for the parent, but long term it's beneficial because you're not watering the negative behavior. So it's I and B ignore negative behavior. And behaviors are like your teeth. If you ignore them, they go away. Okay, and if you ignore negative behavior, if you don't, if you don't make them into an issue, and now parents are coming, and grandparents, and the kids created basically a little chasana, and he mm -hmm. realizes that these negative behaviors actually are beneficial to him. Correct. So if you ignore it, he'll resort to other means, which you say are self-calming. Self-calming, problem-solving. Now, this doesn't happen in five seconds. This takes time. Most of the, th the three phases that I have, each phase takes approximately six weeks in order for a child to learn that. By the way, I was doing this, but I cannot begin to tell you how many years before it hit me like a ton of bricks. Six weeks is 40 days. It took me a while to figure out why was, was I seeing change. The parents would come and they would come, and then all of a sudden we turned a corner and it was six weeks, and then we turned a corner again and it was six weeks. And I kept saying to myself, this is the number six. What is right. with this number six? I couldn't figure it out until one day it hit me. Right. 40 days. So question for you, can you do this with a teenager too? So we do it. I do it. Of course, it takes longer. Of course, it could be more volatile. Of course, I need the parents to be much, much stronger and much more resolve, you know, have stronger resolve. But if I coach them through it and get them through it, we do see changes. But there's nothing like doing it when kids are little, specifically before the age of eight. That's what I find. If a child hits the age of eight and still doesn't understand the word no, and that life doesn't always deliver what I want, then it's a tougher call. But I do it up until the age of 18. In my practice, I do it up until the age of 18. Right. Well, is this no? I mean, you're not real. This is, I think no is a little. Is, is, is this the point of saying no to your child or just ignoring negative behavior? No. In other words, the, when I say the meaning of the word no, it means that if I build a castle out of blocks, and it falls apart one time, two times, three times. That's a no in my environment. A no means something didn't go the way I wanted. Right. Okay. Okay. Now, um, can adults learn this too, by the way, just for me? <laughs> you know, you know, you know what, what everybody says when they go through my program. Usually by, you know, session three, they come to me and they say, you know, this has nothing to do with my kid. This is all about me. And I always laugh. In other words, basically, if a parent can tolerate the frustration of a child tantruming, 
If a parent can tolerate the frustration of a child disobeying before they learn obedience, if a parent can tolerate the frustration of a child not going to sleep when you want or not, uh, you know, taking a shower when you want or not finishing dinner when you want, if parents learn to tolerate frustration, children, A, learn by observation, and B, that's what drives the program forward. No, but I, I mean to say this. Can an adult somehow learn at a later age how to tolerate when things don't go the way they want? Like, is there a way if, to... Yeah, if they identify it as a need and they're willing. And how would they not do that? All, not all adults are willing. So th there are various ways. People go for a anger management help. People go for all kinds of help for that. But I find, in my, I can only speak in my world, when parents walk through the 18 weeks of my program, they come out different people because they've learned to tolerate the frustration of their children being children. Okay. Let's go to the second step. Obedience. Obedience. Like, is that happen just automatically? Now, once ignored negative, the kid learned, I ignored negative behavior, the kid learned how to self-calm, so does obedience sort of follow automatically? It doesn't follow automatically. It has to be taught. It's unfortunate that it has to be taught, but that's the world we live in. It's a democratic world. I do what I want. I come when I want. I go when I want. I wear what I want. I say what I want, right? So we're, we're raising our children within a culture that doesn't advocate for obedience particularly. In other words, the world does not believe in telling your child no. Effect. Right. I mean, listen, we still do have, you know, I still will, if I'll speed on the highway, I'll still get a ticket. So we do have, it's not a completely lawless society that we're living in, but it's a lot less, it's a lot more lawless than it used to be. So if you're comparing raising a child in, in the Tyra world and you put set that child against the backdrop of democracy, which believes in all types of liberal freedoms, there's, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a huge conflict there. So that's why it's so important for our children to learn obedience as a concept in the early years because they're not being raised in 18th century Poland where there was a czar and a nobleman and authority was in the air. So when you say obedience, you don't just mean obedience to the law. You mean obedience to mitzvahs, obedience to parents, and really boundaries in a way, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So how, do you how do you teach this? So there are two methods. They're too complicated to you know, get into this venue, but there's a uh, method for little me, Dr. kids. Excuse me, Dr. If Hillel comes to, if a gear comes to him and he says, I could teach you the whole tire standing on one foot, mm -hmm. don't you think you could teach us the two levels of obedience in a few minutes? Yeah, with, I could try. Two feet? Yeah. <laughs> I could try. There are two, it's two different strategies. One is called hand over hand, that's for little kids, and the other one is called nothing until, and that's for big kids. How to do it is, is, is detailed, but the concept behind it is we don't use language. And I'll try to explain. You tell a child to do something. And again, I don't allow parents to give commands in the first six weeks while they're teaching frustration tolerance. I don't allow them to give commands because at that point the child is not able to obey. And it's in order not to be over on you wouldn't give a child a command unless you're 100% sure that they can obey. So it's really, really important not to set up a situation, of a scenario of disobedience where you say, go take a shower, and the kid tells you no, and you say, go take a shower, and the kid ignores you, and you say, go take a shower, and over and over and over again, because every time you create another scenario, thousands and thousands of scenarios of disobedience, then what happens is, is that Adam Nifal Kafi Pulosa, the child becomes a product of their actions. They become disobeyers. So in the first six weeks of the program, the only thing I allow parents to do is to say things like, it's shower time. 
it's bedtime, the shoes belong in the closet. So this way, if they don't obey in that first six weeks because they don't know how, then nothing bad happens from a chinuch perspective because you never told them to. So in the first six weeks, we make sure to distance the child from disobedience so that when we get to phase two, we can teach obedience in a more smooth fashion. Does that make sense? Yeah. You don't want to do okay. damage. So how do you exactly. teach obedience? Uh, so obedience has two strategies, one for little kids, hand over hand, one for big kids, nothing until, and both strategies involve action with, with Can I just language. Can ask you something? Sure. Have people ever told you that obedience in America sounds the most offensive? Yeah. Like boundaries sounds like a yeah. lot better than obedience. Like obedience yeah. sounds a little bit like slavery or like, uh, uh-huh. or like the Stepford right. Wives. Like it just, right. you know? Yeah, it does, but I'm not afraid. Okay. I'm not afraid to use these old-fashioned terms because the last time I checked Parshas Yisro Perik Chaf Pasuk Yud Beis, did you check recently? Is the no. page still there? It says Kabet Es Avicha I mean, it's very, very clearly, clearly. So you're talking about obedience to parents when you say yeah, obedience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which uh, obedience to parents, which will lead ultimately to obedience to your Rosh Hashiva or to your Rav or to your whoever. Why does Rabban Shalom? I remember learning this in high school. Why does Rabban Shalom create us with parents? Why aren't we made like the goldfish? He needs us to diaper his babies. Why did he create us with parents? Because through learning Kabbalah's old, the concept of Kabbalah's old in general, which takes the first 10, 11, 12, 13 years, we arrive at Kabbalah's old Machah This is why the Rebbe made us with parents to begin with, and which is why he put Kabbalah is one of the Aserah Sadibras. Hand over hand involves just walking the child through the action, without talking, and through conditioning over and over and over again, the child becomes conditioned that what you said will happen. So the kid Obviously, does not want to take a shower. Right. A little kid what, you, doesn't you want to take a shower. You just pull him you into just, the shower? You pick him up the way you would a little kid, and you bathe him. And he screams and cries, and you bathe him as if he's not crying, with a smile on your face, and all is well. If there's more details to it, and what's the, I can't what's the con- But what is, the, what is the, the concept here that you're... That you're and you're attaching the command to the action. You're juxtaposing the command to the action. And what action. does that do? It connects it. It connects it in the, in the brain. It makes us what we call a synapse. My mommy says, and it happens. My, my father says, and it happens. My mother said, and it happens. My mother says, and it happens. Over and over and over and over again. And eventually that connection is formed. So I take it that with a teenager you can't do this. Correct. Up until the age of eight, we do hand over hand, and then we have something called nothing until, which is a different strategy. It doesn't involve hands anymore, but it, again, it involves no language, and it looks like this. You tell a child to go take a shower. Why? What's the importance of doing it with no language? Oh, so language is not... Behaviors don't get learned through language. Behaviors don't understand language. Behaviors are learned through observation. How does this work? The ears, which are on the side of our heads, are connected mainly through the temporal lobe, which is, pro- which, which is what processes language and is close to the parietal lobe. That's where we learn our math and our science and our geography and our Chumash and our Navi and our Gemara and our Rashi and our Tesis. The teachers teach through language, primarily. Behaviors, emotion, personality, those are up behind our forehead. Those are in the frontal lobe. They operate differently. They get absorbed through observation. That's the concept of hashpa, right? right? Why is that so important? Because our behaviors get learned through our environment, just through by observing. And I think, although this has never been proven, that they're near the eyes for a reason. So if you 
for example, walk into a room and a child is writing on your wall with a red marker and you start screaming and yelling, how many times do I have to tell you not to write on the wall? Then you're sending the message through the wrong venue. It's like trying to peel an orange with your toes instead of your fingers. But if you were just to separate the marker from the child and walk away, that child would be forced to observe the fact that you separated the marker, connect the dots and say by themselves and learn by themselves, oh, it must be I'm not supposed to write on walls. So behaviors don't get taught through language, which is why my obedience phase is either hand over hand or nothing until both of which use a minimal amount of language. Okay. And what's the impulse control stage? Impulse control is much, much later. That's during, hopefully, teenage, the teenage stage, where that's where kids already experience a little bit more freedom and liberty, and we're not so in control of them anymore, and we ship them across the ocean 6,000 miles away, and we say to them, don't smoke, or don't go into Lebanon, or don't take a taxi, and we hope that through the years of teaching, frustration, tolerance, and obedience, that we will arrive to the point where they would be able to control their impulses on their own. We cannot control their impulses for them forever. We're not there forever. And define like impulse control, like describe it. I'm met up with something that I know I shouldn't be involved with. I would like it. I feel pressure from other people that I should try it, and I hold back anyway. There comes your anyway word again. Right, and the and the method is, I guess, because since I realize, look, I have to deal with things that I don't necessarily agree with, and obedience has taught me because of that, and I can tolerate listening to things. I obey because even though I don't want, I anyway can do it because I'm used to the fact that I don't get everything that I want. And I therefore, know I'll be okay anyway. Therefore, I can control my impulses. Correct. And I know the, the operative point here is that I know I'll be okay anyway. Life has taught me, my childhood has taught me that even if I don't get everything I want, I'm still okay. How fascinating. You know what's fascinating? I've interviewed a few other people. Like you hear things like, the most important thing is to love your child. It's like, you know, that is, I think this is just a whole new. It's a whole new thing. You know, it's interesting. I always say, you know, it doesn't say via haftes bincha, via haftes bitecha wana. I guess because it's natural. But it does say via haftel because that's not so natural. Right. So, the idea is is that when you teach something that's so obvious in a program, the point is when clients walk into my office, the idea is that they should learn something different that's not so obvious. I know they love their children. You asked me, the first question you asked me in this interview is when your parents walk into your office, what percentage of them know anything about parenting? And I said zero. You didn't ask me what percentage of parents love their children. I would have told you 100%. I have a question for you. And I'm, this is as an American, maybe as a Jew, right? Um there's something about obedience that scares me. In other words, when no, because when I when you think, world. but it's more than that. Avram is called Avram Ha'ivri. Like the Jew is taught to be, you know, the dissident person who thinks for himself, doesn't follow the masses, or a tiny speck on the face of humanity. Right. And like obedience to me, like sounds a little bit like, you know, just like follow, listen, don't think for yourself. It, it's, okay. So, so that, you're, that, that you're talking about me, obedience you know? as an adult versus obedience for a child. You see, in order for a child is going through a stage called childhood. That's when the cupcake is in the oven and it's baking. The child is developing. 
obviously every child, once they exit the first 7,000 days of life approximately, will go off and develop and become various things depending on who they marry and depending on what their Banshalom sets up for them. But the foundation, in order for a child to grow into that, there has to be some kind of cheshman of what's right and what's wrong. So you wouldn't want an eight-year-old being a dissident. Avram Avina was way older than that. You want, in other words, because if an eight-year-old is a dissident... By the way, then, you say he's way older. It's actually a machloikis, whether he was Ben Arboim, Ben Arboim Bishmain, and there was a sheet to hold a medrash who was Ben Skimol Shanim, Fikir Avram yeah, Spire. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> all right, all okay. right. Okay. But, you know, childhood then was different. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Rivka was also three. I mean, it's just a different developmental stages. So in the developmental stage that we know as childhood, we want to teach them the concept that there is a higher authority, and that namely being the Rabbana Shalom. And then from there, they find different ways to to manifest that. But dissidence also has its dangers. You know, we have all kinds of movements that are, you know, that branch off of who we're supposed to be. So, you know, we need to be careful on that level. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. You know, somebody smart once said, and I, you know, he says, um, I forgot who it was. It was one of the Chachmim Asylum. He said, he said something to the effect that he said, agreeable people go along with the flow, mm-hmm. and difficult people don't. Mm-hmm. So he said, all change in the world, therefore, would seem to be by difficult people. Mm-hmm. That's all. It's just a, so I, I, I totally agree with you. We don't want our kids writing on walls and doing crazy, and, and we want them to listen. Um, we need them to. And then once they've passed that stage, then they can develop any which way. And that's what the teenage years are all about. A healthy teenager who already understands that uh, bottom line is that they must, you know, there is going to be an authority always directing them throughout life. But the yeshivas and the high schools, their focus is on self-expression. And that's where the girls learn to express themselves in various ways and the bachram learn to express themselves in various ways. And that, if you talk to any mechanach during the teenage years, that's what they want. But they're sitting on that foundation that so falamases, the kids know they have to obey. And that got accomplished in the first eight-ish, nine-ish years of life. This was a fabulous interview. Thank you very much for your time. If anybody wants to buy your books, your tapes, how would they, like if they wanted to follow up, I imagine you have a website. Yeah, so the website is www.handsfullchenuch.com. Or if somebody, if somebody Googles your name, Dr. Sarah, 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 Sarah yeah, it'll, yeah. It'll, 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 it'll pop up. right up. Yeah. It'll pop right up, yeah. Thank you very much. Okay. Joining us from Lakewood, New Jersey, is Matis Miller, a therapist, who put out a book, The Uncontrollable Child. Clearly, Matis is an expert in parenting. Welcome, Matis. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. So talk to us about the most common parenting mistakes. So what I notice is, is that a lot of parents vacillate to extremes. You have parents who are very anxious, very fearful to say anything to their child, to put any limits. Um, very often that could be because of their own difficulties in their upbringing. Uh, often we actually see in our communities that people have fear of, well, I'm going to uh, cause my child to make poor choices or go off the derech or be at risk or things like that. Or they have this idea that it's just about love, love, love your child and that the idea of understanding that there can be a concept of discipline or limit setting, those things they feel are old school and not important in parenting. And then I see the other extreme where parents are 
trying to control the environment. They want their child to be a certain way, um, and that could lead to, unfortunately, sometimes imputativeness or criticalness or, uh, you know, tends for perfection. Um, and the idea of being able to balance these two. So I, I think I really see two different camps. Obviously, there's a whole continuum along the way where parents are struggling. Um, I focus a lot of my work on uh, children who are more emotionally sensitive, reactive, have you know, uh, outbursts, um, and sometimes there are, there's that one or two children in the family who are very black and white thinkers, and uh, parents are making the mistake of trying to parent this child just like every other child. Um, and as we know, that every child need, has certain needs, and especially a child who's, who's more sensitive in finding that balance. You said three things. So you said vacillate to the extremes, right? These are love, 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 or the authoritarian parents who's control. What do you see more of? Um, it, it's interesting. It, sometimes I see um, it being mood dependent, <laughs> so I could see the same in the same parent. Um, I, I can't tell you. I, I think I'm seeing more of a movement of parents fearful uh, to put in limits and, and boundaries with their children. I think I'm seeing more of that uh, than in the past, um, that there's this movement of, of, of love, love, love. Um, but then uh, there, every so often I, I do come across uh, the, the families who, you know, they, there's a lot of rigidity in, in, in how they think their children should be. Um, but I would say for the most part, probably more of the love or just the hopelessness of, of, I just can't do this. I just can't parent. I just can't get this right. And they really just leave it all up in the air and the child try, starts controlling the environment, which is uh, another apparent thing to say that I often see is because of that feeling their lack of skills or know-how or hadracha and being in of their children, they end up just letting everything slide. Um, so I, I've been seeing more of that end. So do you believe that most parents should take a parenting class or should get educated in it? It's such an excellent question. It's something that I, I think, you know, I, I, as a clow, and I, I, I'm extremely passionate about this, and I've spoken to many Rabbanim and Gedalim on this topic, um, and I, I know uh, that many believe that parents have an innate ability, and we have, we're created with innate ability to parent, and I think a lot of that is true. A degree of intuitiveness that a parent has um, and, and some people maybe naturally have it. And I, I think what people start to realize is when, you know, uh, a Yishmael creeps up um, or there is that other child that has sort of different needs, um, they start to see that they need those skills. So I think there are, there are parents out there who really are clueless in terms of parenting. Um, and, I, I, you know, and that could be multi-generational or that could be going all the way back, I don't know. Um, but then I think there are parents that assume that if I have a certain keep, you know, knowledge or ability to parent children, that applies to all children. Um, and then, you know, we have that uh, child that, that creeps up, that difficult child. Here in the United States, you need a license to everything, right? If you want to give a haircut, you need a license. If you want to paint somebody's fingernails or toenails, you need a license. Forget about a car or a teacher. You need no license to be a parent. Like, why is it there an assumption that what is arguably the most important task we will have in our life, we as Jews certainly believe that, right, is bringing up children requires no education, you go to Shurim and Halacha and in Chumash and in Gemara and there is not a Shurim. It's, it's astounding, both as an American and as a, it's just astounding to me, isn't it? It is. It is. And you're preaching to the choir here. I, I, I feel that just about everyone um, should be, uh, would be the most effective thing for them to get. Um, I don't 
know about a license, but to get to be required to uh, take certain you know basic parenting classes, and obviously some would need more. Now, what I can tell you, it's interesting, is and I can tell you from my experience. Parenting classes is not necessarily enough. It's extremely helpful and beneficial, but what happens is because there are so many other components, their own emotions, their own upbringing, their own belief systems, that or the finding that very tailored made balance for each and every child, that often they need consistent guidance. And I, I, I think, again, to your point, where you say people, as far as halacha or shirim, they're, they're continuing, they're growing, they're asking, they're learning. I think this is an area as well, that there should be uh, m- more individuals that specialize in this area and that are guiding people because this is the, our most precious and important commodities and, and uh, we know how, how it affects the, the world around us. Um, and I, I think it should be required and, and in terms of school systems, and many do. Um, I think there needs to be more. I mean, just to give you an example of areas where I personally struggle, right? So let's say you have a father who is, you know, sort of, very, you know, yeshiva boy. So he, he's a he's a lamdin, and he's the whole day he's he's arguing and learning and clearing and And you have an artistic child. I mean, it's like a Martian landed. Mm-hmm. Like like you want to draw a picture. Like what do we need drawings for? What are pictures for? And what is music for? For heaven's sakes, right? I mean, how would a parent like this ever be able to associate with with a child like that without wrecking the kid, without some type of education? Or, or the other way around. The parent is very musical and artistic, and he ends up with, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a science, math, Gemara cup. Like, how do they? How do, I'm talking about two extremes, but how do they even relate to each other? I think of a parent, and, and certainly I agree that when you have a child with certain specific needs, and they're very, very different than you, um, it's so important to learn and to read and to ask. Um, I think a key component in, in parenting is um, flexibility. And, and willingness to understand that we're different, and a lot of that's about our own personal character, and the ability to accept things that might be strange or different or not how, again, we were brought up or how we think or what we enjoy or what we like. Uh, and I think if we could start to look at our children uh, and just like we accept ourselves for who we are and learn to accept them for where they're at instead of trying to fit them into a mold that we think they should be um, and understanding their struggles and being able to take a step back and be more mindful and notice and observe the differences and try to work with those differences. Parenting is a journey and a lot of times we make mistakes all along the way. Every parent makes mistakes along the way. And that's okay if we're willing to acknowledge those mistakes, learn from those mistakes and, and work towards change. But I think that comes with a lot of awareness and acceptance that just because, like you said, we brought a child in this world, that doesn't mean we know the exact recipe to this child. We have limited time, but he'll was asked by the by the ger to learn tomdeni kolatayral regalachas. We we get fifty thousand listeners, sometimes thirty thousand. Between that, you have if you had ten minutes, five ten minutes to teach all the parents who are never going to go to a parenting class. Like, give us a few yisaitis. What would they be? Give us give us a few. Let's start four or five yisaitis. Okay. So so one thing is as I touched on it already um, is I think a lot of us have shoulds about our children and about people in general, so that a child should be a certain way. And when we put a should on our child, we're putting our expectation, um, our opinion on what the reality is. 
and I think, you know, sometimes a parent will come in and say, you know, my, my child shouldn't be lying. Uh, and the answer is your child should be lying, not because we want them to lie, because there's a cause. And I think one thing that can be really helpful for parents is to let go of the judgment and understand there are causes for the, you know, like you mentioned, autism or other issues, is that it's coming from somewhere. And I think being able to let go of the shoulds will let go of our anger and our frustration and move towards acceptance. Can I, can I just be Maggie Albita? Yeah. You say autism. Right. So I'm a student of Myers-Briggs, 16 personalities, right? Um, I believe that there are children who it's really very hard. If you have an extroverted child, right, who's not intuitive, right, who's emotion-based, to get this kid to study is going to be murder. So for one kid, it's like swimming in the water. And to the other kid, it's, and on the other hand, I have friends who are brilliant Talmudic Hachamim, that for them to pick up a phone and sell something or ask somebody to do something, it's, it, it's easier for them to jump off a cliff than to do something like that, right? So I, and I don't see it like so extreme as autism. I see the 16 personalities and I say trying to put all of them into one, you know, it's, it's a, and at work, it's the same thing. It's absurd. I mean, you take somebody who is, you know, the salesperson, the extrovert, who loves people, who loves, loves variety, Right, and try to give him a, a job which requires analysis, he's going to be terrible at it and he's going to hate you and ultimately leave and you're going to hate the work he does. So, you know, so I, you know, I see it just as the 16 personalities and many of them do, have, you know, do not really match the requirements that we as a society want of our children, which is mostly to be outstanding in learning. Or for women, it's to be, have great patience with kids. Well, what happens if you have a woman who's an ESTJ and it's just not her personality? She can't do it and she has no zisflation. Asking her to sit down with kids and be studi and be patient, it's like there is not a single patient bone in that personality. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, and that's the shoulds. I mean, that's exactly it. It's where we're, we're, we're getting stuck on the way we think we think this child or society should be. And if we can just be aware of those shoulds and rather look at who the child is and what their capability is and accept them, um, that will help us emotionally and it will help them thrive. So that, that is certainly one point that I would want all parents to, to understand and move towards accepting their child for who they are. Um, the other thing that I would... I think it's such a powerful skill set that I think parents are lacking. Um, is to, and part of that is to learn how to validate the child. Now, I, I know today that's an overused word often, validate, validate, validate. And validate does not mean approve. That doesn't mean that we're validating what's not valid. But is be, when you be able to look at our children, especially when they're struggling, and, and learn the skill, and it's a skill set, on how to validate and understand your child's perspective, even if you don't uh, give them what they want or um, respond in a certain way that, they w that that would be their preference, but is to really understand your child's experience and validate the child's experience. Give, me, give us an example. What does that mean to, to, to the layman here? What does that mean? Give us an example. Hi, your little, your daughter, Hanala, or your son, Yasi, comes over and says this, and this is what validation looks like. Give us an example. Um, Right. So let's say he comes over and says, everyone hates me. Right. So what would a natural response be is, um, no one hates you. Why, why are you making such a big deal, honey? No one hates you. You're the greatest girl in the world. Right. So again, that is invalidation. So we're not going to validate that everyone hates you, but you can validate, say, honey, I see that making you so sad and, and that you're thinking that people hate you and that's so hurtful. 
that you think that about. So already that helps actually the child regulate the emotion. That would be an example of validating her emotions, her thoughts, her experience, not that she's hated. Um, but that could be even on more extreme situations where, you know, a, a child comes and tells the parents that they're, they're embarrassed about something and the parent is quickly to say, it's not a big deal, don't worry about it, just move on. Um, and, and again, that's it's very much related to the shoulds, where we they should just be able to get over it. But for them, they were experiencing a lot of shame and embarrassment, and to be able to uh, you know hone in on those emotional experiences and those thought processes is very powerful. Um, respect respect the kid's perspective and his sense his respect his view of reality. Exactly. And that doesn't mean you have to agree with it, and that doesn't mean you have to make changes with it, but it helps the child, in looking for that kernel of truth, it helps them feel understood and connected. So what would you do? So let's take that to the next step. So you say, everybody hates you. Wow, like, what happened that made everybody, like, that you feel that way? Okay, now I validate it. Now how do I move that to the next step without unvalidating it? Right. So when you actually go, uh, let's say you would say, uh, what would invalidate it was, would be followed by the word but, for example. So, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, or uh, I hear that that's so hurtful or that, that you're thinking that way, but no one thinks that, but no one thinks that about you. So basically, I took the first part of my statement and by saying but, I completely invalidated it. So what you want to do, even in terms of your language and your thinking process, is and at the same time. So what would you, know, you say? So I would say to the child is, um, again, Hani, I, I, you know, I understand this is, is so hurtful and you're thinking that people hate you. Um, and, and perhaps there are some people who maybe don't like you to say not nice things about you. And at the same time, um, you, know, they're, you know, we love you and you have so many wonderful characteristics and you do have some friends who really like you. And I think it's important to realize that and focus on that. Now, what you're going to also notice in that process, and, and obviously I very often work with far more extreme examples, but when the child gets the, the understanding, it get, feels understood, already the intensity of the thought and the emotion will decrease because a lot of the function of them uh, increasing the intensity of their emotion is to communicate, is to get their message across. And that will help the child shift and be more flexible and move on. Yeah. Okay. The the other thing that I would throw in there is is limit setting. And okay, so that's number three. Recognize yeah. the different, validate limit setting. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think we don't realize is that our children need limits. They need structure and they need to hear the word no. Um, and there's loads of research that's shown that children who don't have a limit setting throughout their childhood, they grow up and they're more likely to be impulsive, engage in self-destructive behaviors, have difficulty regulating emotions and urges. Um, and often parents associate limit setting with being mean and, and punitive um, and we need to say yes to our child. And the truth is we do. We need to say yes as often as possible. At the same time, no is really, really important. And we have to define the limits in our home. Now the limits are constantly changing. We all have our limits. But parents need to be able to observe, understand what is appropriate for that child and to learn how to implement the limits maintain those limits, and be consistent in those limits. Of course, that's balanced with a degree of flexibility. But the ability to say no and to implement a limit and a consequence are very, very important for children. It was a fascinating uh, you know, situation many years ago where I was uh, helping a mom who had a, a daughter who was very emotionally dysregulated, constantly fighting, complaining, uh, you hate me, uh, nothing was right, um, tantruming regularly. And she, the daughter came home from school 
um, I think it was a Mother's Day project, and uh, on the top of the page said, Reasons Why My Mother lo- Loves Me. And she wrote, and this uh, individual brought it in, she said, Because My, um, my Mother Set Rules. Uh, that's that's what she, this child wrote. She understood that the rules was a uh, was communication of love, and and understood what was she was, the mom was doing what was best for her, even though she didn't like them and she screamed. But if it was coming from a right place, now of course when we put in limits and we're dysregulated emotionally or we're trying to um, control our environment, um, and it becomes a power struggle, that can be very very harmful and dangerous to our child. But it's really important for parents to be able to say the word no and, under, and, and to be consistent in setting limits and not be scared to do so. Okay, give us one more. Um, I, another tip that I think is you know, really important is for parents to be able to use a, what I call extinction, but I'm going to, uh, let's call it planned ignoring, is that very often when our children act out or they're engaging in problem behaviors, we're very quick to try to uh, lecture them, uh, address the behavior, give a consequence, remove them. And I think an important skill to use often, and, and in order to be able to use this skill, you have to be regulated yourself, is to not give any attention to the behavior uh, and is to completely, totally ignore the behavior and let the behavior be. And yes, what we know when we ignore behavior, they will up the ante very often, and, and you'll see uh, some worse behavior that might come. But if a parent continues calmly, consistently to move away from the situation and not engage the behavior, the child will experience the emotion and the emotion will pass. And they'll learn that they're not going to be reinforced or get response to that behavior because the negative reaction, not only does it increase the intensity of the child's behavior, it's reinforcing their reaction. And I think that's a very, very important skill in parenting. Can you give us an example? Um, An example would be is a child walks in and says, I hate supper. And parent says, you asked me to make this supper last week. So Chaim says, yeah, but I didn't ask you to make it like this and it's disgusting. And then the parent says, well, it's disgusting. That's not how we talk about that, talk in his house. And then Chaim says, well, if, it, if you don't make disgusting food, then I won't talk like that. Um, and, and they get in this back and forth where, it, and it's actually even leading to, again, a power struggle, um, creating more negativity in the relationship, as opposed to Chaim coming in the house and saying, this, this, uh, this is disgusting. I don't like this dinner. And again, you know, we talked about the validation. Mom can turn to him and say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that this was something that you don't like. I thought you would like it, and this is what we have for dinner. Well, then get me something else. And then uh, one technique is to use broken record and say the same thing. This is what we have for dinner. You can make something else, but this is all we have right now. Rand, and then move on. No longer, even if he's upset and he's grumpy and he's stamping and he's, I, I hate this house. There's nothing for me to eat. What kind of parent are you? You know, you don't love me. At that point, the parents understand that it's most effective not to respond to any of those behaviors. And that's a very, very effective t- technique over, over time not to reinforce it. But, but shouldn't it be like address negative behavior like that? Well, there's the should belief again. And, and here's the last point that I'm going to tell you, which I think is an overarching point on everything we're talking about, is to do what works, is to do what's effective. We have to, effectiveness means thinking about what's our long-term goals in a relationship. And our long-term goals is to figure out the most effective way to bring up this child in the most healthy way. And also, our long-term goals is that he should be uh, an appropriate adult that's living in society. So when we get stuck in that should, well, we should address it, um, you know, that's getting stuck in our belief system, but not necessarily what's most effective. Um, and, and very often, you know, if the child is upset or having some frustration and he's expressing the frustration, 
let him express the frustration. If you're going to, you know, I often say to parents, uh, you know, well, he, he needs to know he has to get out of bed after they, you know, knocked on the door, you know, three times or it's been uh, five weeks they've been doing every single day. I said, you know, is it working? Is it being effective? Well, he should know. He should know he needs to get up. I need to tell him. Isn't that what you're supposed to do as, as a parent? Well, what they don't realize is, yes, of course you want him to know, but he knows. If I pull this child aside and say, do you think your parents are happy you're sleeping in every day? You say, no, all my parents love it. Of course the child knows. But we are getting so stuck on our belief system of what, what we need to be doing instead of looking at what works and what's effective. And it's more effective for the child, uh, parent-child relationship right now to take a step back and let this behavior be. The other thing is, is it's okay for our children to have emotions. They can be upset. They can be angry. They can express disappointment. When we are so punitive and controlling of our environment, I see those adults who learn to subjugate and inhibit their own emotional experiencing, and they never allow themselves to feel emotions because emotions are bad, or I'm not allowed to act up, or every time I get upset about something, I get sent to my room. Obviously, as we talked about today, there are limits, and there are times that there are consequences. There are also times that it's most effective not to give attention to behavior. Even when the child has clearly insulted the mother, etc., by saying, well, you know, she's worked on it and she, she says it's garbage, you would just say, I mean, isn't that setting like a bad example? Like, because today it's his mother, tomorrow it's his, it's his wife. Okay. So, so the answer to that is the child is usually looking to get a response out of, his, out of the parent. Now, I'm not going to tell you that if the child says your dinner is garbage and then five minutes later says, Ma, can I have $5? I want to go to the store, that mom should go ahead and give him that privilege at that moment because that would be reinforcing perhaps that it's okay. So, of, of course, we want to give that message. But what we do know is, is that if the child comes and expresses that and does not get a response, the child will end up moving on and not continue engaging in that behavior. So your concern is that in adulthood, he's going to do the same thing to his spouse. That's not true. Children go through the developmental stages. They have a long day. They're upset. They're frustrated. They come and they don't like dinner. They're expressing their frustration. Now, of course, depending on the child, some of those behaviors should be targeted and addressed. So every child has one. If he uses certain language um, that's extreme and really inappropriate in the house, that you need to address that right away. Now, even if that's not effective, sitting there and continuing to lecture or ridicule or punish again and again, it's like the, the, the uh, student in the classroom where the teacher uh, tells the student that if you continue to act this way, I'm going to send you out of class. And then the teacher sends them out of class. And then it happens the next day and the next day, and they're going to the principal's office, and it's three months later. What was the goal? The goal was to teach them the new behavior to understand the consequences, but clearly it's not being effective. So what do you gain by continually sending out that child every single day, aside from hurting their self-esteem, making them feel negative about themselves, uh, the teacher getting more and more frustrated, the child not learning? Now, I'm not saying the answer is to be in the class, but we have to look to, uh, look to alternatives. So um, very often, many of the stages or behaviors that our children expressing, us just not giving it attention, is very effective in decreasing the behavior because that's very often what they're looking for. They're looking to push your button. They're looking to get a reaction, and it's more effective not to respond, and eventually the behavior will dissipate. Of course, if they're going and they're beating up their sibling or it's a safety issue or they're screaming so loud to disturbing the whole environment. Now, again, if for that child there are more severe behaviors, you're going to you can't target everything and expect every child to behave. And you talked about autism. If a child is, uh, you know, has difficulty, um, you know, or any child regulating uh, emotion or they don't have the skills or the capability, uh, constantly telling them to stop doesn't mean that they'll be able to just stop. Perhaps they need those skills and tools. 
and we're having expectations that they should be able to do it, as we talked about earlier in this discussion, um, and, and they can't. They, they struggle with regulating. Um, it's very hard for them when they see things they don't like. Change is hard for them. So we have to constantly have the balance of accepting them, letting go of our, their shoulds, understanding their perspective, at the same time understanding where it's effective and important to, to, to put up limits. I was just giving one strategy of using planned ignoring, or I'm going to say another one such as broken record, which is the same concept, which is really helping us keep regulated. So if the child, I'll give a simple example, a child's supposed to go to sleep and says, you know what, Tati, I'm hungry. So again, back to Chaim. So you could say, Chaim, I said, it's time to go to sleep. But I'm starving. You're going to let me go to sleep like this? Now the parent, um, you know, is, is quick to respond and get into a discussion. I didn't let you go to sleep like this. I told you earlier that if you want a snack before you go to sleep, you have to have it earlier. Uh, you can't ask when it's time to go to bed. You didn't tell me that. Yes, I did. It becomes a whole discussion. Verse ignoring all that other behavior, and even if the child is screaming and whining and, and saying to the child over and over like a broken record, Chaim, it's time to go to bed. Well, I don't want to go to bed. Well, Chaim, it's time to go to bed. Well, it's not fair. She didn't go to bed at this age. Chaim, it's time to go to bed. Tati, why are you saying the same thing again and again? Because it's time to go to bed, and that's what you have to do now. And, but, and that helps you keep calm and not get into that power struggle and ignore all those other behaviors so we can actually learn that there is not going to be a response and that will decrease that behavior over time. Mattis, this was really wonderful. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Take care. Bye-bye. Joining us from Passaic, New Jersey, is Rav Ron Yitzchak Eisenman. He's the Rav of Ahavas Yisrael of Passaic. He's a Mishpacha columnist. In his shul, he's spoken and given classes about parenting. Welcome, Rav Eisenman. Thank you so much, Rav David. It's a pleasure to be here. Sir, Rav Eisenman, give us a, tell us like a few of the Yisaitis of parenting, but that you would think that if you're uneducated and you haven't spent time in it, you, you, you probably wouldn't know this. Like just a little bit past olive phase. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think the Yisod of the Yisodis, the fundamental of the fundamentals is that, I don't know if everyone knows or not, but that every action by a child should always be met with the exact same reaction by the parent. I think stability is probably one of the most core fundamental needs for successful parenting and too often parents unfortunately are inconsistent yesterday spilled milk is uh, met with a scream one day and the other day it's met and the next day it's met it's okay Shafila. so this uh, inconsistency leads to an insecurity which i think is uh, very detrimental to a child's upbringing so you say consistency is sort of you would start as, as a key in parenting yeah Correct. Obviously, with the caveat that consistency, hopefully, in, in positive or within the lines of positive parenting, not consistency, obviously, in abusive parenting. No. Let me ask you, you, a lot of your show, I imagine, are working people, right? Passaic is a working town for the most part. Totally. Um, yeah. How do, you, how do you parent when you're trying to balance career school, a lot of stress at work? I'm Passaic, you know, if they're, if they're, you know, Jewish parents... You know, usual, many of them have high, you know, power jobs. How do you balance parenting and a stressful career? Obviously, it's challenging. I do believe when possible, obviously, and everything should be done to make this possible, that the family eats dinner together is extremely, extremely, even in the secular world, the Jewish world, I know as a rav, I can be very busy, but that was sort of a, a rule which cannot be broken, a that the family ate dinner together. And there was that connection, I think, in the family. I think that's very critical. But Rabbi Eisenman, 
if if a fellow's a, a lawyer or that and he's working at a real firm or a doctor and he's working at a real hospital and or he's you know running any business it's really not realistic to eat with the kids you know five days a week it's just not it's not realistic it's correct it's not real i mean i'll tell you i'll tell you better than that if the guy when he went to the law firm said by the way one of my requirements is that i eat with my kids every night they would say the door is over there <laughs> right right correct there is the 40 the 40 hour work week right for the, for the white jewish male who's trying to pay tuition is 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 a fantasy you're right. It is a fantasy, but honestly, it's not a bigger fantasy than the fantasy I would have told you if I would have told you uh, two years ago, exactly today, in December 2019, that in two months, every single person is going to be sequestered and quarantined in their homes, and every law office in New York City is going to be shown the door shut. You would have said that's a bigger fantasy. If one thing we have learned from COVID and from quarantine and from virtual and remote working and learning and communicating is that honestly, I'm not saying they have to eat dinner together, of course. You know the business world much better than me. But I think COVID has taught us that uh, like anything else, you have to a lot time. If it can't be every night, okay, so the Shabbos meal has to be special. Whatever it is, you're right. I definitely agree with you that you can't, we're not looking for clones here. Quality time has to be spent with the children in some way, some form, on some regular basis. And define quality time. I think quality time should, one, have the purpose of conveying to the children that at that moment, they are the most important thing in the world. My youngest daughter, she's living me well, my youngest daughter, I, I always, I was lucky I didn't have to be in the law office. But I always did homework with all my children, particularly my youngest daughter. I did homework with her from first grade till into college. And I remember once I got a phone call. We were in my study. And uh, I picked up the phone and I said, I I'm sorry. Uh, she was maybe in third grade. I'm with someone now. It's a very important meeting. I can't speak. And afterwards she said, Ta, who, who are you talking about? You, you know, you're not with anybody important. What's going on? And I said, I am with the most important person. I'm with you. And, you know, I, I meant that seriously. It wasn't a cliche. Um, honestly, in fact, the, the end of that story sort of took place about 15 years later, 14 years later, when she was 16, 17. We were in the car together, and we hit traffic, and we were going home. We had to get home, whatever. And I said, oh, too bad, Aviva, we're going to be home late than we thought. And she said, it's okay. I get to spend more time with Utah. So that was probably one of the nicest things anybody ever told me in my life. I think you have to convey that, A, when you talk to them, you don't, you're not on your phone, you're not on looking at anything else, you're making eye contact, you're conveying that they are the most important, and obviously that you love them more than anything in the world, that they are the most important thing in the world, even if you said it's true because of the, of the challenges of Parnassa, father sometimes has to be away from the home, and their mother as well, more than they would like to. You know, the, the, I heard over once the, somebody came into the Chazenish and he told the Chazenish, he was talking, he said he was Matzliach and everything in life except for his kids. And when he left, the Chazenish said, everything in life except for your kids. Like, isn't that the most important thing? And it's like, so when you say you're speaking to, to the most important person in the world, and, or, or when you tell your daughter, I'm speaking, I have, I'm sitting with important people, nothing could be closer to the truth. That's your point. A hundred percent it has to be. And, and you know, that, by that, that principle, 
certainly with our children, when we speak about parenting, but honestly, like in most good principles, it really goes over to many other fields. I, I remember when I would I had the privilege of speaking to Shlomo Zalman Arba Satal a number of times, I never in my life met someone who had the uncanny ability when you spoke to him, A, he tried to find something in your life that he that connected him with you. I told him who I was. He said, oh, I was at your grandparents' wedding. And he told me exactly when it was, where it was. But B, I, I came away with the feeling that he had, that I was the most important person he was talking to, and he had nothing to do. Obviously, he had plenty to do, but he was able to convey, it was such a validating feeling. So when you give your child that personal attention, it's, we all need validation. We all need that, that sense of I'm something. So I, I really think it's crucial, really crucial. And it's true, like you just said. It's true. If they're not the most important, you know, if T. Hirsch Weinreb once told me when I was telling him the hours I spend in the Rabbanas, he said to me, Rabbi, remember one thing. When you're old and sick, your congregants aren't going to come and help you in the, in the house. What you're going to have left is your family. What you put into them now is uh, hopefully <laughs> it'll last a lifetime. Wow. It's just worth having you on for this, for this story. Talk to me about um, a child is bullied. How does a parent react? Yeah, it's, it's very painful. You know, a parent, on one hand, I tell parents when they come to me, on one hand, their their job is, is to be, they're advocates for their, you know, for their children. On the other hand, they still should be open to at least hear the, you know, the, the full story. I um, I remember Reb Chaim Kanievsky, should, should live and be well, that uh, Rev Wolf from the famous Wolf Seminary in Bnei Brak came to him and said that all the other girls in the class are, are copying your daughter's notes, and they're not doing the work, they're not taking notes. It's just not right. It's terrible. And Rev Chaim agreed, you know, you're right. Well, so now you're going to go ahead and tell your daughters not to let the other girls copy their notes? And they, he said, no, absolutely not. And he, he said, why not? You agree it's wrong. He said, of course it's wrong. But my job is that I don't want my girls to be ostracized by the rest of the class. Your job is to figure out how to run a school. My job is to make sure my girls feel regular, good, loved girls. Um, and that I'm not going to do. I'm not going to ostracize them. So when a child is being bullied, I think that the child, ha if obviously the child is, it's true that they're being bullied, which obviously you have to look into carefully, but that the child has to know they have, you're in their, you are in their corner, has to know you're in their corner, and you're there for them. But on the other hand, a child, I think a parent has to have that maturity sometimes to be able to listen as well. What, you know, there's usually, obviously, as we all know, different sides to a story. So I think that's the struggle there. But the child should know initially that, you know, I, I'm in their corner. I don't know who said this. I don't know if it's been proven scientifically, anecdotally, I don't know. But someone said, how much time do you have to react if your child tells you, which obviously is much more, much more serious, than sexually abused, I said, you, know, you have five seconds. And if the immediate reaction is not validation, I love you, you did nothing wrong, I'm so proud of you. So bullying, obviously, if the child believes it, it has to be the first reaction, that I'm in your corner. Later, the parent can do their own Jewish Vichakira, figure out a little bit more detail. A, a parent was brought into this world to protect their child. Oh, for sure. Sure. Yeah. Protect their child, validate their child, convince their child that give them the self-confidence that, uh, that they, are, they are special, they are very precious, 
they are the most important things. They have no doubt that they are the most important things in their parents' life. Can a parent be overprotective? Yes. Yeah, for sure. That takes also, it's a lot of finesse. We don't want to uh, spoil the child either in that way. You know, that's, it does take a lot of finesse. You know, they, they say that the, the, you know, the, the, chidushe, the chidushe Harim, I think he buried 13 children in yeah, his life. Yeah, a lot, yeah. And the only one, the only, I don't know, the only one, but the, one of the main, the Sfasemis, right, he was the, the survivor, he, he raised he, him. The, he was, he, Sfasemis was the son, was a grandson. Sfasemis right. was the son of, you have his son, you know, Martha was his oldest son. Right, like nine years old. His father, I think, was in his 30s or something when he died. He was young. I think. So they say that he, one day someone told the Chidusherim that the Sfasemis complained about breakfast, what they served him. I don't know, some sort of mush or whatever it was. So I think he told the Gabayim, make sure for the for the next 40 days that's all he has for breakfast. Yeah, it's also. Yeah, Mary Nagaila, yeah. So I, I don't know if we would do that nowadays. I don't. But obviously it does, you know, I mean, this, yeah, this idea that we indulge our children to no end obviously is not, I mean, you know, whatever, that still obviously can't be beneficial to most children either. Right. It has to be a balance. It has to be a balance. So share with us before we end one, one other you cite in parenting that you think is really important that people may not be aware of. So I think one, so we're not that I can't say, but one big episode is just remember, don't ever make the mistake of living vicariously through your child. Oh. Uh, okay, never make that mistake. As too many times I have parents come to me, especially Balichuva, especially Balichuva, who, however they became from whatever, but they looked at their, their child is going to be the next Chafetz Chaim or the next Sarashnir or what have you. And for the most part, their child is copying what they saw modeled at home. And often I tell parents who have difficulty with children who are struggling, whatever word you want to use, often they're a fringe, whatever, I tell them what you have, your children are your clones. They're actually doing what you did. You left the way of your parents, so your children are now seeing that they can leave the way of you. But why are you so surprised you did the same to your parents? Why is like, I mean, it's disappointing, but why are you so disappointed you were planning to live vicariously through your children that the great Saudi that you wanted to be, they should be? I think that's, that's a big mistake. Children are, will one day become adults and parents and they will make their own decisions and we have to respect that and we have to, even when it's disappointing, we have to still love them as long as obviously, God forbid, there's not something uh, I don't want to talk about, you know, uh, uh, elder abuse, God forbid. But, I mean, yeah, I, I think we have to not live vicariously through our children. Let them live how they live, respect how they live, especially, not even, especially when how they live is different than the way you thought you raised them. doesn't matter. Rabbi Eisenman, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to speak. Culture. Mm-hmm. Joining us from Toronto is Sarah Anna Radcliffe, a psychologist, a significant part of whose practice is parenting, who's written many books about parenting, some of them, the recent one, Raise Your Kids Without Raising Your Voice, and Better Behavior Now. Welcome, Mrs. Radcliffe. Thank you so much. So what's so hard about parenting that it needs courses and books? Like, isn't it mostly common sense? Your kid's bad, you treat them one way, they're good, you give them a reward. Like, what am I missing? (laughs) 
Uh, well, you're missing modern uh, knowledge about neurology and um, how brains learn and how behavior can be changed and what reinforces and educates, um, what corrects. So the old models um, that come kind of naturally, they come naturally when we're raised by parents who do them. So whatever our parents do becomes natural for us. Um, but the, you know, just punish a kid, send him to his room if he hit his brother kind of thing is not in line with our understanding of how we learn new things. So if the kid hit his brother, just for example, um, maybe he was frustrated because the brother grabbed his toy, he wanted the toy back, he, you know, punched the brother, grabbed the toy, and the parent wants him not to do that. And even a simple thing like wanting the child not to do something shows that um, we're, we're nowhere near being able to get the child to do what I call the target behavior, the correct behavior. Like we have to ask ourselves, well, what is it you want this, let's say, six-year-old to do when his brother grabs his toy? We have to be able to answer that question. And we need to be saying like, well, when the brother grabs the toy, I'd like the six-year-old to ask it, ask the brother to give it back. If the brother doesn't give it back, I'd like the six-year-old to come to a parent and get enlist the parent's help. Now, if that's the target behavior, you have to wire it into the child's brain. And you, your attention has to be focused on that. There's a whole technique and technology. This does not come naturally. You actually have to know about it. That's actually the behavior side of things. Um, I wrote a whole book on it called Better Behavior Now, which is sold out, uh, but you can always call um, Manuha Publishers and ask them when it's coming back in stock. You know, it's, it'll be there soon, I hope. Um, but it's a short book, but it requires this knowledge to get the child to do what you're wanting him uh, to do for a lot of good reasons, right? You want him to be behaved um, not just for no reason, but because this will lead him to the happiest, healthiest, and most functional life if he knows what to do in a million situations. So. Okay, so, so let's talk about that. You have a kid, he's bullying a sibling, and you mm -hmm. want him to stop bullying his sibling. How would you go about that? Like, you know, there's two ways. You could either say, listen, the next time you hit your brother, I'm going to, you know, give you, put you, send you to your room. You can say something, if you stop hitting your brother, I'll buy you a toy. Like, walk me through. How would you? Sibling A, the oldest sibling, is, yep. was hitting sibling B. What do you do? Okay, so first, we cannot teach a behavior that doesn't exist. So when you want him to not do something, not eat with his, uh, not talk with his mouth full, not bully the sibling, you can't teach that. You can't teach something that doesn't exist. You can only teach him, let's say, to chew with his mouth closed. That's the target behavior. Or um, treat his brother, I don't know when he's bullying his brother, but let's say um, he doesn't play nicely with the brother and he makes the brother you know, play the game he wants. We'll give that as an example. You want him to give the brother a choice to choose the game. You have to be let's very say, specific about what you hits, want. Let's say he hits his brother. You have a brother, one, the older sibling oh, yeah. bully, and he, he hits his younger brother. What do you do? So, you know what? You see, this, your question shows how complex it is. First of all, we're not going to say he's a bully. He has some um, difficulty in regulating his emotions. He doesn't know how to behave in a pro-social manner. Um, now, we're not going to make him the bad guy because if we say, okay, this brother's the bully and he punches out the little one and the little one is, you know, the innocent good one, the victim, and this, this older one is a bad boy, essentially, a bully, and we're going to punish him endlessly. Now, What's going to happen here is he's going to have a lot worse behavior because I'll give you an example of this. There's um, 
an incident that actually happened. I've written about it elsewhere, but this little boy and his sister are sitting at the table. The sister says to the little boy, the little boy, yeah, he has some learning issues. He's not a great student. He doesn't like school. The sister knows this, and she says to him, we have a day off tomorrow. Okay, very quietly. Mommy doesn't hear. Mommy's in the background, you know, cooking or something. And um, she's, the little girl's kind of provoking him, teasing him. So he takes the food that's on his plate, the hot food, and he throws it her way, okay? And mother sees this, comes running in, and starts yelling at him. What are you doing? What are you doing? What's wrong with you? Go to your room, okay? Now, that's kind of what I call natural parenting because the mother is, like, horrified at what just happened. And she sees this the little boy as the bully, the one who always does this sort of thing. She yells at him. He runs up the stairs to his room. He slams the door. He screams, I hate you. I hate this house. I hate the sister. I hate everything. You know, and whatever. He gets very verbally um, obnoxious. And the mother says, you need to stop talking like that. If you do that, if you continue talking like this, you're going to lose this privilege and that privilege and the other privilege and the whole thing escalates. And the poor little boy, I mean, he'll be in therapy in about 20 years because he's going to feel like a... um, unloved, that he's not good, that he's hated by his own mother, that, he, you know... Well, the mother and, only saw half the story. It sounds like a foolish mother to me, you know? Well, when we see a bully, because you're talking about a bully child, we get very protective of the other kid, the victim. That's a natural parenting instinct. And so I don't want to blame this mother. And by the way, I don't like blaming any mothers <laughs> or, or fathers or anything, because it's so hard, okay? But anyways, what the mother really needed to know to do is to come to the table quietly okay, without her own adrenaline. And, you know, just stop the throwing of the food. Okay, let's stop the food. What happened here? She asks the boy, as if he, maybe he has a good reason for this. And, you know, and, and, he's, and basically he does have a reason. The, the sister um, teased him, and he does not know how to control his emotions. So the mother, again, has to ask herself, what is it I want to teach him? So he's going to say, she told me she's not going to school tomorrow. You know, and the mother says, ah, so you were really upset when she said that, and that's why you threw your food, right? He said, yes, I'm going to whatever, and he goes on. Now, she named his feeling. He was upset. Um, And that's very important, the naming of feelings. It doesn't come naturally. Parents are problem solvers. They'll punish the kid. They'll tell the kid what he should have done. None none of that actually rewires the child's brain for the correct behavior, but that's what parents will do, and they will not stop to go to the inner experience of the child, which really just requires a simple acknowledging of what went on, what was the trigger for the child's bullying behavior, okay? And so when the kid feels seen and understood, the mother's still going to educate him. You know, when she teases you and you feel really, really upset, you can do, after she's acknowledged his feelings and when he's calm, she can enter her teaching moment. You see, this requires a lot of knowledge and skill, and this is why there are parenting courses and parenting books and (laughs) parenting help, because the... um, the just instinctive way will inevitably cause more behavioral and emotional difficulties for our kids, whereas the informed and skilled way makes for a much better experience in growing up. Okay. If, if we have a lot of young or not-so-young parents listening, most of whom have never taken a parenting course, if you had to distill you know, the wisdom of parenting into like three or four basic thesis or postulates, what would they be? Okay, well, it seems that uh, one thing I'd say is that you know, if it's uh, instinctive, it's probably not the right thing. So that's one. Um, two, we're not making children. Um, you know, this, it's not like if we just do everything right, we can raise a perfect human being. We are one part of the picture 
um, but there's a lot of other parts. Mostly the child's genetic inheritance tremendously affects the long-term outcome of who he's going to be. The other parent has an equal role to you. The school and the classroom experience, all of the outside experiences, the personal traumas that that kid encounters being bit by a dog when he's whatever, running home, everything that happens to him outside of your jurisdiction, his own free will, many, many, many factors determine why a child is going to look the way he does when he's 20 years old. You have one part as a parent. You don't want to take credit for your great kid, nor do you want to take blame for your child with a lot of problems. What you want to do is do the best job that you can do as a parent. The only thing you have control over is your own mouth, your own behavior, how much you learn and study and, and um, apply yourself to this most important job. But the outcome is not yours to control. Hashem has a huge hand in this as well. So we don't judge ourselves or other parents by the way the kids look. You judge yourself just by how you're doing, okay? Are you yelling and screaming at your kids all day? You need to do something different, right? So um, just upgrade. So to distill it, um, we need to model everything we're hoping to see in our children. So if we want them to have good emotional regulation skills, we cannot yell them into that. Um, we have to model it. Our marriage is an important thing for our children because they live and breathe our marriage and learn all about that kind of relationship from us. Um, yeah, it's both mainly about working on ourselves. I'd say to be, you know, parenting involves growing ourselves up even more than growing our children up. As we do a better job living our lives and providing the right model, we'll be able to give everything over to them, not only through modeling, but through teaching. But the, you can't teach it if you can't model it. Okay, so let me repeat what you said, because you said a lot. The first thing you said is, is that there's really a, a limited amount how you could, what you can do to affect who your child is. A lot of it is going to be genetics. It's going to be you know, a lot of nurture, a lot of nature, right? IQ, personality. Why is Briggs a 16 different personality types? You don't get to choose. You don't get. You don't. Get, you don't get to choose which one he has, or his IQ for that matter. Outgoing, introverted, extroverted, student, not a student. Um, so you say it's genetics. It affects the outside world, his friends, the the class, the students, um, the 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 environment. It could be COVID. Right, that he grew up. So it's parents, outside environment, and genetics. You have one third, maybe, with your husband. Without your husband or your your wife, you actually have one sixth. So take <laughs> so taking credit is really not something you should be doing. But for the same matter, taking blame, uh, placing blame is not. All you can take credit for is that one sixth that you have. Have you done it well or not? Did that, did that encapsulate the first message? Yeah, that would be good. And I would add to your personality types and differences the very important things that we're dealing with in raising our children. Um, there, there is a lot of there's more factors. There's there. We don't. We can't decide which of our children will be born with a mood disorder, a behavior disorder, an anxiety disorder, um, the ADHD, and the learning disorders, or the other. You know, the different. Uh, it's more than temperament that we're dealing with. We can be raising an extremely difficult child, and if we don't, you know, um, make a like like just lose it with that kid every day, we may be a fantastic parent because it might take every ounce of our strength to get through the day um, with a very challenging child. We're not all raising the same kid. There are definitely, you know, there's very easy children and there's very, very challenging children. Um, and it's just, you know, we have to encourage ourselves and each other uh, to understand that it's 
a really complex job that Hashem gave us. And we're just going to, you know, walk this with Hashem. You know, ask for help and don't focus on the outcome. Just focus on what you can do. Okay. That was the first thing you said. Um, and then the second thing you said is that um, the best way to parent is by modeling. No. Um, I just want to modify that. If I said that, I, what, I, what I meant was you can't teach anything that you're not modeling. <laughs> you, you, have to, you have to teach. Um, you definitely have to teach, and you have to know how to teach. But if you're not modeling it, you won't it be won't, able to teach it. won't have any impact, yes. It will come across as very dishonest, and kids pick up hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Right? And then the, the last thing you said is your marriage is really where modeling starts with. Well, marriage is a parenting tool. Um, I actually have a chapter on that in that book, Raise Your Kids Without Raising Your Voice, um, because you are the child's entire education about family relationships, intimate relationships, um, you know, in-law relationships, everything. The child grows up with you, and whatever you do, that's normal, and that gets downloaded into the child's brain. You as a mother are all women to your child, and you as a father are all men. Um, your marriage is all marriage, okay? Because the kid is just living with you for, you know, a little, little cooped up with you for 20 years and breathing it all in. So, um, yeah, the best we can do, if we, if we do a good job with our own lives. Um, we're managing our mood, our responsibilities, our relationships, um, our uh, duties and you know regulations, our service of Hashem, everything. Everything we do, if we can do it, a good job of our lives, we'll be helping our children start on a good path to theirs. And wherever we're kind of on our weak side, um, we can't give that over yet. So to, <laughs> the, you know, good parenting involves working on ourselves a lot. So, question, how come you see some people that have six kids, seven kids, and they all just are wonderful kids? They're in the system, they get good marks, they're in their class, they're all popular, and then you have the neighbor who works just as it's But it's interesting, six for six, or ten for ten, seen that too, and then you have the neighbor who really tries hard, and they don't nearly have that success, and you look at them side by side, like, is it mazel, like, what is it? Um, well, Hashem gives us our children and tells us to educate them according to their way, meaning they come, you know, kind of half-baked. They've got a personality, like we said before, that includes temperament and disorders. Um, you're, there's a lot of what we call invisible disorders that you won't, you can't see what's uh, going on inside a child but uh, by looking at him. He may look perfectly normal, but he may have a lot of things going on that make his life very challenging. Um, one parent can have, you know, five amazing kids and one the sixth kid, or not necessarily in that order, but, you know, a sixth kid in the family is completely out of step with everybody else because of his genetics. I, that's why I say, like, we cannot look at the neighbor and go, like, what is she doing that I'm not doing? Like, that shows a lack of understanding as to what goes into a child's um, development. You know, it could be that uh, your kid, for some reason, um, you know, is being bullied at school. He's a perfectly normal child, but he's experiencing trauma. Um, maybe he's being assaulted somewhere, you know, maybe, and he's, he's experienced trauma. His whole personality and his ability to learn, to function, to be normal, to regulate his emotions, all of it is compromised. Not because you're a bad parent. This is what I was saying at the beginning. There's a lot of factors besides parenting. And so in a sense, yes, the one with the sixth 
wonderful kids or the 10 wonderful kids is having a form of muzzle in that a lot of things were in place. Maybe, you know, she's a great parent. He's a great father. That's a difficult combination, not that common. Okay, <laughs> Great mother, great father, um, you know, great school, great peers, um, you know, great siblings, great everything, right? That's a that requires, you know, Hashem's bracha there. Most of us have gaps somewhere, and we can't control our spouses. We marry them with, you know, a great deal of hope, but then it could be that our partner is a very different kind of parent than we are. Um, we may be struggling in our marriage, not because we're, we're suffering with skills, but for a variety of factors. We bring our own traumas and handicaps into our parenting journey. Um, we're all good people trying our best, as you said. But it's a very complex matter, and we cannot look at things superficially. Um, it's kind of like looking around saying, oh, everybody has a happy marriage except me. You know, it's a very superficial and uninformed view of things. <laughs> like, human beings are so much more complicated than what, what we so see on the surface. So a common parenting mistake that you see that you're surprised that intelligent people make? I think we think that what we do doesn't matter enough. Now, let's say it's only 2%, like we said. But we don't... Um, a common mistake is just speaking to our children in a tone of voice that we would never speak to anybody else in. Okay, it's like we, we um, bark at them, we, we say things in a disrespectful way to them. That's part of that whole modeling thing. But I'd say that's a really common mistake. You know, go to bed now, okay? Who, who talks like that to anybody? And then when the child speaks to us that way, we're horrified. Um, so that's one thing that we, we don't, uh, we're not treating our children like we treat anybody else. I really think myself more in terms of helping parents um, to do the job they want to do. I don't really think of them in terms of intelligent people making stupid mistakes or whatever. So, you know, that's not where my brain goes. We're all trying very hard. Um, parents love their children, and I don't think they love them too much. They maybe just don't know sometimes um, how to guide the child to do the desirable behaviors. They attend. We naturally attend to improper behaviors. So if a child is sitting there at the table um, and he's uh, not using, he's, he's eating with his hands, okay? The normal parenting mistake that we'll all make is we're going to turn to that child and say, uh, stop eating with your hands, use your cutlery. And we don't understand that by attending to the fact that he's eating with his hands, we're actually wiring that behavior further into his neural pathways in his brain. That's, an, that's a mistake, but it's not because we're not bright. It's because we need to learn that. Somebody needs to teach that. What you want to do is get that kid to hold the fork, okay? And you say, honey, you know, we re redirect them, put the fork in your hand, okay? So, Excellent. You put the fork in your hand. You're eating like a little gentleman. That's the way we do it here. Yes, Koya. Okay. The talking cannot wire in something either. For example, if I tell you the notes of how to play a song, that doesn't help you. You're not going to be able to play that song until you play that song. So that's, we're going to redirect the child by telling him what it is we want him to do. Right. And then we're going to have him do it because it's the action of doing the right behavior that needs to be programmed literally into the brain. So yeah. we, don't, we don't talk about the negative behavior. We talk about what the positive behavior should be, and then we ask him to actually do it. Perfect, perfect, perfect. And then when he's doing it, let's say he does it the way I describe it in Better Behavior Now is he does it, and therefore he's making one new wire in his brain, a neural pathway. But in order to supercharge that learning and speed it up, if we now attend to that one wire, then we can add thousands of wires at the same time. And that's why when we need to keep talking 
for example, um, let's say I have an example with a, a 15-year-old who leaves the table. She's starting to leave the uh, dining room table, but she left her plate on the table where she's supposed to bring it into the kitchen and put it in the sink or the dishwasher or something. So as she leaves the table, the mother says to her, oh, honey, could you please go back and get your plate and put it in the dishwasher? Um, so now, this is a common mistake because the parent has, if the, if the kid goes and gets the plate and, and puts it in the dishwasher and the mother has stopped talking, then the only wire that actually got reinforced in the kid's brain was leave your plate on the table because the mother spoke only to say that the plate was on the table and please move it. The mother needs to keep speaking as the kid is now doing the target behavior. So the kid is on the way to the dishwasher and the mother can go, thank you, honey, that's very helpful. I appreciate it very much when you take that plate off the table. That's great. Thank you, honey. You know, and the mother is now talking to the child while the child is doing the, you know, the appropriate behavior. Our commonest mistake is to be talking to children when they're doing the wrong thing. And we think we're helping them, but actually we're wiring in the wrong behavior. How do, you, how do you deal with a child who has poor self-image? Um, that's an interesting question. It would depend on where the self-image is coming from. Um, the, if you are the source of it, because <laughs> you know, you're always criticizing the child. Like, ask, again, another common parenting error is to keep correcting people instead of noticing what they're doing right. Um, so even this comment about your plate is on the table or you're eating with your hands or whatever, we want to be careful about our parenting ratio. This is something I write about in the other book, Raise Your Kids Without Raising Your Voice, that um, if you are giving too much negative feedback, even though it's perfectly accurate negative feedback, what happens is that uh, you can definitely lower the child's uh, opinion of himself. And uh, there's a lot of other negative consequences. You're, you're attending to the wrong behaviors, so whatever. You, the, the rule is the 80-20 rule, which is that 80% of what you're actually doing when you interact with your child needs to feel good to the child. And 20% can be educational, um, so some sort of guidance, correction. 80% has to be positive, and 20% could be guidance and correction. That's really important. Let me go back to the, the question I asked you. You have a kid who has a poor self-image. What do you do? Oh, okay. So I said, first of all, don't, don't contribute to it. Don't by, be the cause uh, of the self-image. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't have the source of the child's low self-esteem. Maybe actual challenges that the child is having. For example, he may be the lowest, um, you know, in the class academically or certainly not, you know, in the um, apple of the Rebbe's eye in terms of the, you know, his performance there or whatever. Um, he... He may have his own social problems. Like I said, he may be victimized, bullied by other kids. He may have a kind of personality that other people don't like that much or that see him as an easy target. Or within the family, he might even be like a disadvantaged according to so where he do? is in the family. You have a kid who's, you have a kid who's funny looking. Um, mm -hmm. Our society, we're very, very sensitive in the United States about you know, not having you know, any type of uh, racial preference. You know, we, we, we're handicapped, God forbid. Um, but the society shamelessly empowers the good-looking and and just sort of backseats the, the funny-looking. You have a kid who's funny-looking, has a paired self-image. What do you do? I read a book years and years ago that I can only remember the subtitle of. I'm really sure, sorry about that, but the subtitle was Lessons My Mother Taught Me. And it was actually about um, a woman from a large Catholic family. There was like 13 siblings, and they were all... They all had their challenges. They were all learning disabled, ADHD. Um, they were not good students. They were always in trouble. Um, and the lesson the mother taught the kid was how to make um, 
each child feel very, very proud of himself by looking at the child's strong point and identify his and the family with their strong points. The author herself of this book was a terrible student, and the mother said to her, don't worry, when you get out of school, you're going to find your place in this world, and you're going to make your mark. And um, what happened to this young girl who was a dismal student all the way through school, barely got out of you know high school or whatever, um, if she bought up half of New York City at one point, I do forget her name, okay, but this was her biography. Um, she became um, fantastic in, in real estate. The mother found her, you have street smarts, you're going to know what to do. And this is what the mother said to each kid, you have this kindness, you have this good heart. So each kid knew where they were shining, okay? And that helped. So two of the big takeaways that I have from this are, one is the 80-20 rule. And you say it's usually the other way around. It's usually the 90-10. People, it's 90% orders and 10% compliments. Feel good? It's got to be the other way around. Yeah, and, the, and, the, and the next thing is you said this is critical to good parenting, I would think, is find your child's superpower. Yes. There's going to be a lot of areas, there's, you know, they're, they're in the... Uh, in the uh, you know in, in the skill set at work, there's you know 70 different skills people can have. So there's probably 65 that he's not going to have. Find the five that he does have and just talk about them. This week's parsha: Find the blessing that your child has. Was another yeah. very important thing. Then you mm-hmm. said, remember that no matter what your child turns out for good, you're probably not as responsible as you think. <laughs> the other way, too, don't sit there crying. It probably has very little to do with you if you try hard. It probably could be genetics. It could be mood disorders. It could be outside influence. Peer, it could be friends, bullies, teachers, etc. And then, um, yeah. right, so it's between genetics, outside. So, so don't rip your hair out if you did your best, and that's fine. And then the last thing, as you said, is that um, modeling is really important because if you say one thing and you model another thing, everything you're teaching is just going to go right out the window. Exactly. Right. And you said marriage, your behavior in marriage is really a lot of how your kid is going to see the world. Right. Mm-hmm. In other words, if the two parents, their reaction to where they don't get, a, you know, they don't can't get along is by screaming. That's exactly how the kid's going to deal with a, a setback. Well, by crying or et cetera. So, what do American parents do really well? You know what? A lot of people these days are studying parenting, and I think you know they're educating themselves, and I, I think that's really impressive. Like we're not relying anymore on this is the way you know it was done, or um, you know I know everything and I don't need to be told anything. I think we're we're learners. I think that we're willing to open our minds, and as a result we can do better and better. So here's my question to you. Um, we're becoming better parents. Makes sense. You know, I guess our schools are getting better. But at the same time, like the use of psychologists, and you would know that, has like probably gone up 50x from when I was a kid. Like when I was a kid, I don't know anybody who went to a psychologist. Today, everybody's going to psychologists. Everybody's labeled with, a, you have this, you have that. There's nothing that doesn't have a label. So if we're doing so much better, how come we're using psychologists and therapists and we coming and we're also we're also getting all these interesting we're getting labeled so much more that seems to be a little bit of a paradox uh yeah so the uh, the labeling is a definite problem um from my point of view, I guess, as well as yours. But I want to go to the positive side of this. It's uh, going to, we're now um, not going because we're all mentally ill, okay? We're going because 
the adults themselves have received um, benefit that helps them become um, better, happier, more well-adjusted people, more able to serve Hashem properly, um, better spouses, better parents, and sometimes we chill, we send our children because we want to ward off the effects that we know that uh, trauma can perpetuate on them, the effects of being bullied, the effects of uh, having struggles at school. We're trying to help them preventatively, and we understand more now, and we have the help available. This is a gift in our generation, because people before would just um, try to cope with stress uh, in very traditional ways, drinking too much, uh, yelling at everybody, um, getting physically ill, having more you know, disease in their body because our unprocessed and unhealed stress makes us physically quite ill. Um, there's all the diseases from the cancers to the heart attacks and whatever are stress um, affected or induced or maintained. Uh, so we're just becoming healthier and more aware of what we need to do to be healthy. And I don't see that as a sign of my, we're getting sicker, you know. <laughs> I think we're getting a lot smarter about what we need to do to take care of ourselves. So you say, we're not, you say using therapy more is like saying, it's like saying people are unhealthy because more and more people are going to the gym. Yeah. The answer is, <laughs> no, people are actually healthier because they're going to the gym. That's, that's right. That's right. Let me ask you one last question. Um, in the Orthodox community, you know, saying that you, 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 you're sending your child to a therapist, it's something, oh my gosh, you can't say that. It's going to impact Shaduchim. How do we break this sort of this old world view that basically Michigan went to psychologists or therapists, uh, sort of like, you know, only people post-heart attack would go to the gym. How do we, how do we break that model and sort of say, you know, people have lots of struggles, and you can really be smart about them, or you can be uneducated about them and just bury them and let them blow up one day, you know, you know, and, and shows up in diabetes, obesity, heart disease, or even cancer and stuff. Like, how do we break that stigma and, and sort of say, this is a healthy thing, not an unhealthy thing? I, I think we're well on our way to that. I mean, I read the, you know, Mishpacha magazine, which I write for, and I, and you know, there's a million articles in there that are really all about therapy, and I know that the other magazines also have that, and I think that we have already broken it, and people do not go like, oh, there's something terribly wrong with you, you know, even if you were taking um, your appropriate medication for your mild case of depression or anxiety, whatever, people no longer say you are Mishugana and we're not going to marry you. I think uh, everybody knows that these are resources, whether we take natural supplements or take our vitamins or go to our therapist. Like, I do think the worldview has changed quite a lot in the past 30 years about all that. And people are not slinking around. People talk openly about their therapist. You know, and people see it for what it is, an opportunity to, like I said, be happier and healthier and more wholesome and more successful in every way. Um, there's nothing to be ashamed of, and I don't think people are so ashamed of it anymore. This was really wonderful. Thank you very much for your time. This was educational, and I'm sure our listeners are going to get a lot out of it. I hope so. My pleasure. Thank you Thank so much you for so having much. me. Joining us from Eretz Yisrael is Rabbi Noach Orlowick. He's uh, written a number of books, many books about parenting, My Disciple, My Child, Raising Roses Among the Thorns, etc. He's a Talmud of Simcha Wasserman. He's a Talmud of Zechariah Levracha Tzadik Levracha, Rav Her Sheldman, the Mera Mashkiach, Zechariah Levracha, Rabbi Vigda Milo, Zechariah Levracha, and he's Mashkiach in Torah Ernau, among many other schools, for 25 years. So he's a Talmud of Rav Scheinberg. Welcome, Rabbi Orlowick. Shalom Levracha. So, Rabbi Orlowick, how important is Shalom bias and parenting? Like, can parents who don't get along bring up 
healthy children too. Like, give us some feedback. If the connection doesn't seem like a direct dotted line, maybe you can help me on this. Right. Okay. A home. We have a lot of difficulties today with people going off the derech. Okay. Uh, without having to define that, but leaving the chinuch that they had in their home and going and looking for other areas, often dangerous and unhealthy areas. A home is a place where a child should feel safe, where they can speak, where their worries will be considered, their aspirations will be respected. Um, I'll give you a very simple example. When um, a child asks for a third or fourth helping of dessert, they say, no. And she says, I understand. You don't say no. You, you say, I know, I understand. I like all that white sugar and artificial coloring also. We can't have any more. But the root is when a child hears that his home is that there's no, there's no peace. He doesn't feel safe. His home is his anchor. His home is where he can be himself, where he can speak about his fears, about his worries. A child says, uh, the, I'm worried there's a monster under the sofa, under the bed. I see it. So what do you do? You don't say there's no monster. You look under the bed and you say, I don't see any monster, but I can take care of any monster in this house. Meaning a child has to talk about his feelings. Besides the, the health of it, of people need to speak about what's on their minds. You don't know your child because he doesn't respond because he wasn't heard. And what's harsher, if I had to define love, it's, if it's important to you, it's important to me. So if the child is, in your eyes, asking a silly question, never put it down. Always stop and listen and hear it and take your time to remember it. In the home where there's no shalom bias, a child doesn't feel safe. The parents are preoccupied with their own problems and their own issues, and it's a, it's a true rachmanis in them. We don't judge anyone. And it's not our subject, shalom bias, per se. But if it's a home where there isn't shalom bias, so then children don't feel that they have a home, and therefore they look elsewhere. Uh, this whole theme, there's a book that came out about a year ago, two years ago, Fear the Child, S-P-A-R-E, by Rev. Jakobson. This, this, gold, this book is a gold mine. And there, one of the main points is children need to feel their self-esteem, and that is done in the home. We have today a problem that parents are asking schools to do things that they need to do. Schools are meant to teach. And there are 20, 30, 40 children in the class. They can't give each child the self-esteem and attention they need. And they're being asked to do so because their homes are, are drowning in all different kinds of issues. But the issue of showing bias, a child feels, I have no place. I have no place to be. I need to take care of myself. I've seen young children decide, I need to take care of myself. And this, I would say, is, it needs to be done, needs to be taken care of. Parents who stay together and work out their problems are teaching their children, you can have issues, but we can work them out. It's okay. So even though it doesn't seem to be connected, there's a direct connection to a child's feeling safe and the home being a place where they're loved and accepted. Probably earlier a question. Yeah. Yes. Because you said another, a number of things. You said a child's self-esteem. Well, I don't see a, a direct line between feeling safe and self-esteem. When the parents don't respond well to the child, or, of course, the home is an unhappy home, and the parents are fighting, 
So the child gets their sense of who am I from my parents. Avisa Kutnazatzal said, Aim, mother, means the first one I trusted. If the mother is preoccupied, unhappy, unloved, disrespected, so that child does not have a place where he could um, feel trust and feel and feel the self-esteem, a feeling that someone's there. You know, I, I, now fathers are also very important. But the Afunazatzal says in Pachidisuk and Shabbos, Emuna. Aleph Mem Nun means first I trusted my mother, and then that trust could be extended to Hakadosh Baruch Hu. You go from the more um, the more concrete to the more abstract. So I tell parents, I tell fathers, the first key of chinuch for your child is to make sure your wife is happy. Rabbi Orlowitz, can you motivate? Do you motivate by reward, or you motivate by punishment? Is it a mix of the a combination of the two? It, it, it's neither. Okay. When you motivate by reward or punishment, all you're doing is teaching the child to do what's good for them. It's worth it for me to do this because I get a reward. It's worth it for me to do this, not to do this because I get a punishment. That's management. Often, we go back to the first point, parents are harried, they're tired, they're busy, so they offer rewards and punishment. Yeah? But what you do reward. You reward for effort. When a child does something that's hard for them, so you recognize that. And, but reward should not be things, money, prizes. It's attention and love. You call up, you know, Bubby or Oma or Grandma, yeah, or Safta, and say, you know what David did today? Yeah, and, and, and you send a note to a teacher how, how David did what, he, how he was so amazing in the house. Of course, if you, if you uh, give things, so you lend a lot of importance to material things. And then, you know, the price keeps going up. What was a price yesterday is not a price to me today. And I've seen that group that get together and they make a big emphasis on prizes. I've seen this around the world. So the kids keep saying, well, uh, we had those prizes. We need more prizes. But when kids get together, because it's a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to say to him, physic people. So the kids feel good about themselves because of what they're doing and not thinking about what they need to get but what they need to give. Rabbi Zechrein Levracha, Rabbi used to say, givers are the happy people. Ravobu Zechrein Levracha defined a home as a besmedrish for chesed, where we, talk, we show care and concern for each other, not because I have some you know, reward waiting for me, Rabbi Yorlowick, this is really wonderful. Thank you very much for your time. Okay, what does Rashi say? But all the money that he made in Padan Aram, he gave to Esav to buy his plot in the Maras Hamachpela. Asher Karisi right? Zehu Asher Karis, that's what Rashi says. See, they bought it from Esav. Problem is, the Gemara in Baba Basra, of Kufamid Beis, and the Shulchan Aruch Shin Samach Vav Aleph, and in Chesh Mishbet, Reish Yud Zayin Zayin Paskin, that if somebody's Moicher Kivrei, Boin B'nei Mishpacha V'koivrnoi Seibal Korchei Shalekeach, they could demand, say, look, we're giving you back the money, we want to have the plot back. It's a gnai for us that our father shouldn't be buried over there. So the question is, Ma'ha Yaakov, 
with the Mechira that Esav sold in the Chelik Marasamach Pela, Lahalacha, they could force Esav's Yarshim, could force them to give them back the Kaver to, uh, to bury Esav there. Basita of Lahalacha. That's what our first, uh, riddle is. So some people answered, because since Yaakov died, Yaakov had died already, uh, he was Zoycha and the Chelka. And the din of the Shulchan Aruch that you can force him to return the money is only to the person who buys it, but not to the Yarshim. It's a Chiddush. Um, it doesn't really seem to make that much sense because if the reason is because of the Pagamish Bacha of the person who sold it, what does it matter if it was to the buyer or his Yarshim? I mean, it's, it's, I don't really see a compelling Svara. And the second, this we got a lot of, and I believe the Chsam Saifa seems to imply something like this. They said, there's no Pagam Mishpacha. In other words, the Washington of the Shulchan Aruch is, and they say it's because of Pagam Mishpacha. So they say there's no Pagam Mishpacha yet, because Yaakov is there, and he's Nisha, he's part of the Mishpacha. So over here, there's no Pagam Mishpacha. So the problem is, is two problems. First of all, Rashi in Ksuba says, that's a Gnai for the people who sold it, that... Uh, because now they have to be, not only are they not buried with the family, but that they are, they have to be buried. I mean, even if somebody sells it to somebody from a mishpacha, the seller still has a pagam that he's buried. That's one thing. And if you look in the shach and the sma, they say that what is the gnai? He says the gnai is for the seller that he's not buried with his family. Kim and Hagam, like the Minig was. I mean, the fact that the other person is now buried there doesn't help the fact that he's cover, he's ain't a cover, with his avoisa of Kim and Hagam. So it's, it certainly doesn't seem that way from the Lushen of both the Shach and the Sma. The Shach is in, uh, in Yeridei and the, 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 uh, Sma is in here in Chayshemish, but. Some say that, um, the Shogadar says he has to be give the Dhamim. Well, Rashi seems to imply that he, Rashi says he gave all the money he earned in Chutzlaretz, so maybe it was too much money for Esav to pay back. Well, I don't know. You know, Esav seems to have been a fairly wealthy man. He's coming with Arba Meis, Ishima, he had his army. I mean, you could say that, but I, you need, I don't know. I just don't have a hechrach to it. So the answer to me that seemed the most mistaver is that the Takonas Chazal was because of Pagam Mishpacha. They were worried about the reputation of the family. And um, Chazal in many places were mocked on re- reputation of families. But by a mummer, the argument would be is there's no pagamish bach. If this guy is a mummer, lavoy dezara, which Allah is my reading malin, somebody like this, it's hard to make the argument that Chazal would be misakin something for the pagamish bach. That to me seems like the argu- the, the, the svar that would uh, that would go lechaladeis. A second riddle. It says, Vayizbach zvachim lelekei aviv Yitzchak. So what does Rashi say? Chayiv adam b'chaved aviv, yoyser mi kaved ziknai, lafichach tala b'yitzchak v'loi b'avram. He says, his father is a chayiv kibbed av to the grandfather, but more to Yitzchak, and that's why he's, he was zoveach lelekei aviv Yitzchak, and it's a medrash here and on the spot. Now to Shulchan Aruch in Reish Mem, Sivkat Nechavdalad, a person is chayiv b'chaved avi aviv, but Kavid Aviv Kaidim, he brings two opinions. Marik argues, he always knows there's no din covered for a grandfather. Okay? So Marik says like Rashi over here. Now here's the problem. Rashi in Makis, says that let's say somebody killed Rahman Al-Sahan, somebody killed his son, Bishaygeg. And the son who was killed had a son. So that son could become a Goyal Hadam to the grandfather. 
He's what we'd be, be allowed to go and kill the grandfather al tagayal adam. So here's the question. If the Shulchan Aruch paskins that there's a chi of Kibbut Av to a grandfather, and Rashi says that by us, how could Rashi possibly learn that there's a din of Goyal Adam on the grandfather? How could you be a Goyal Adam if there's a chi of Kibbut Av to him? So Lechaira would be a stira in the two Rashis. That is the question of the Gilion Marsha. That is uh, our second riddle. So some answer that the chi of to be Mechabed, the grandfather, is only Bechaye of the father. But when the father's gone, there is no chiv to be mechaba the grandfather. And Rabbi Kivag in, in Chuvis brings such a svara. But from the Lushin of Rashi in Makis, it certainly doesn't seem that Rashi says there is no chiv kibad of a grandfather. And the same thing to those who answered that maybe it's bemezid and any say amcha. It certainly doesn't seem that way in Rashi. Rashi seems to be saying a blanket in that there's no chiv kibadav of a grandfather. So others say that we got this terrorist from at least uh, 20 people that the chiv to be mechabed the grandfather is because you mechiv to be mechabed your father. In other words, it could, you could say to one of two nischoyes, you could say, look, my father's mechiv to be mechabed his father. So I would also have to be mechiv. Or you could say, my father would want me to mechiv my grandfather. But either way, it's because of the chiv kibadav of the father. So they said over here, since you're a goyal hadam of the father, so fakert, the covet of your father is to kill the grandfather. So in that case, if, if his covet is not mechiv the covet of the grandfather, then there would be no chiv kibadav on the grandfather. We got this from a lot of people. The problem with this is, is that there's a machoikis in the Gemara, is goyal adam a rishus or a chayv? If it's a chayv, it's a mitzvah. So But we don't paskin that way. It's Rabbi Yisrael. We paskin, it's a rishus, like Rabbi Kiva. And the achreinim say, all of the achreinim say, the nitziv, or sameach, that what does the pasik say, if it's only rishus? It's kiyecham levavai. Has nothing to do with kibadav now. Person gets so mad. It's sort of like the din of eishis yifas toyer, dibra toyer keneged, you know, yetzahara. Person is so mad. It, his anger is incontrollable, so we were, we allowed it. But it's not kibadav. In fact, the father very much calm person would say, "No, please don't do that. This was an accident. We were in a car accident, and I don't want you to kill my father." The fact that we let your temper go out of control, okay, the Torah makes exceptions. So you're not the halacha. It's not a kibadav, and very likely your father, in most cases, would not want his father killed because he, in an accident, Rahman Olson did something. And and it's also much by the way that much more of Rashi seems to say there's like a of kibadav klal. So therefore, even though this is the terrorist we got from most people, it does not seem like a correct teretz. And the only answer I could say to riddle number two is what Nachum used to tell me all the time. He would say, when I would try to push it in, so he would say, I'd say, what? He said, Sarachian. That's my teretz to this riddle. And for those who want one more, a third one, what does it say? I'll ask you. It says, Vayoymer Yosef. He says, come, they didn't believe it was him, and he showed them the Mila. Problem is, the Rambam in Perak Yud from Hilchas Malach Malachah says that the Bnei Keturah, and by the way, the Muslim world, you could Google this, circumcises because the Bnei Keturah do Mila. So he says, what's the Chiddush that he was a mole? There was, there's, there's millions of Bnei Ketura. He was one of them. So of course he was a mole. So what is the, uh, what is the Raya that he wants to show them? that he had a bris meal and therefore he's Jewish. So here again, um, some said he was a noilid mole and it looked different, right, than, uh, than, uh, than uh, a milas b'nei ketura. So the first question is, Rashi says, Shekasav hereyu shayu mole kamaisam. Showed that there's a mole kamaisam, and kamaisam was not noilid mole. But on second, I don't understand something. If he was a noilid mole, what does that prove? There are many people, the Shulchan Aruch talks about every noilid mole needs a toughest ambris. It seems that it, it's not the most common thing, but it happens. So what is he showing them? It was a noilid mole, so he didn't do the mitzvah, so what's he showing them at all? 
Um, some said he showed that he wasn't a mashuk per because, you know, if he's somebody's over a virus, he's a mashuk per he wasn't mashuk per doesn't seem that way in Pirish Rashi. And here's, again, we got at least 20 people answered, very interesting terrorists. They said, B'nai Ketura, Einu Mechuyavim B'priya. Right, you call Yisrael's Mila and Priya, B'nai Keturah, so he showed them that there was no Priya, and I actually called up a mile. Uh, Rabbi Friedman, and I asked him, can you tell the difference? He said, yeah, you could tell the difference whether there was Priya or not. But here's the problem. The Gemara in Yuvamis, the Fayin Aleph says, that Avramavinu didn't get Priya either. Like Nitna Priya Lavramavinu. It was only after Matan Taira. So what do you want to be Mechalik? They didn't have Priya. Well, guess what? B'nai Avram until Matan Taira also didn't have Priya. So this Teretz, which everybody, we got again, 20 people, goes right out the window. The best Teretz I could come up with is that to a to a uh, to a ben ketura or to any Arab, right? Showing that you're a mole doesn't really. What are you showing? Like the fact that he understood that they would understand that the mila was significant. That's what he was showing. Right? He was showing, and he also spoke Lush and Kaidish. In other words, he was showing him either one you could frag up. Some people could speak Lush and Kaidish. Like Samad Achrainim said, nobody else spoke Lush and Kaidish. Everybody had Mila. But the fact that he says, look, I speak Lush and Kaidish and I understand the importance of Mila, that combination said, hey, only a Yid would understand that. That to me seems like the most glot to Teretz. Regardless, we got, again, many Terutzim. We're going to, we, even though I didn't agree with some of the answers, we still, I think we had a, um, over a dozen or so winners and which we'll send prizes to. And, um, uh, but it was enjoyable and, um, Sameach to be, have a Masumatan and Torah with so many Talmud Chachamim, um, Nevoinim, Muflagim. And I look forward to the answers for this coming week.